Budget compromise that would allow the debt ceiling to be raised isn't going over well with Republicans or some Democrats. We should not have unreasonable people saying we're going to force default on America unless they can kick people off food assistance. More from a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. It's Tuesday, May 30th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Garo Hagopian. Also this hour, details of a deadly incident during the Iraq War were buried by the Marine Corps for years, including links to a powerful politician. Also, AI is a risk to humanity, on par with the pandemic and nuclear war, according to an open letter signed by hundreds of executives, researchers, and engineers. It's 401. First, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The president and House Speaker's compromise to raise the debt ceiling is not a done deal yet. Enough members of the various political factions of Congress have to sign off on it this week before the federal government defaults on its financial obligations. Speaker Kevin McCarthy is trying to shore up votes among Republicans, including members of the hard-right Freedom Caucus. When the Freedom Caucus talks about wants the spending back to 2022, the non-defense is back lower than 2022. Veterans get more money and defense gets more money. The proposal includes a provision about student loans. If the legislation passes, the current pause on payments and interest will end in late August. NPR's Alyssa Nadwarney reports the freeze was always intended to end. Borrowers haven't had to pay their monthly loan payments or any interest since the beginning of the pandemic. The pause was started and extended under former President Donald Trump and then extended again under President Biden. But even before Sunday's deal between Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, the Education Department was readying the return to repayment with a plan to end the pause either in that same timeline as the New Deal at the end of August or after the Supreme Court rules on two cases challenging Biden's plan to forgive up to $20,000 of student debt. Those court decisions are expected in June or early July. The Biden-McCarthy debt limit deal now heads to Congress for a vote. Alyssa Nadwarney, NPR News. Russia says it shot down five drones over Moscow. It accuses Ukraine of carrying out a terrorist attack. As NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports, the U.S. says it is looking into the reports and points out that more than a year into Russia's invasion, President Vladimir Putin's military is still carrying out strikes on Ukraine's capital. The State Department says the U.S. does not, as a general matter, support any attacks inside Russia. Officials had no direct comment about Russia's claims that Ukraine was behind several drone attacks that caused some light damage in Moscow. A State Department spokesman would only say the U.S. is still gathering information about that. The statement goes on to say that Russia has carried out 17 rounds of airstrikes on Kyiv, many of which damaged civilian areas in the Ukrainian capital. The U.S. Says as Russia started this war against Ukraine and could end it by withdrawing its forces. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. From self-made billionaire to federal prison, Elizabeth Holmes, the founder of the collapsed blood testing startup Theranos, has surrendered to authorities in Texas to begin serving her 11-year sentence for defrauding investors. The Carter family's announced that former First Lady Rosalind Carter has dementia. The 95-year-old remains at home with her 98-year-old husband, former President Jimmy Carter. He has been receiving hospice care since February. The couple has been married for nearly 77 years. You're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Garo Hagopian in Boston. The MBTA has to submit a new safety plan to regulators by next Monday. The Federal Transit Agency is rejecting the T's earlier proposal, calling it insufficient. Stacy Thompson, executive director of the local transit advocacy group Livable Streets, tells WBUR's Radio Boston the feds want the T to focus on critical issues and staffing. One thing they noted again is the need to hire more people on the ground. So we have the right leadership in place, but they the T has really struggled to hire the appropriate folks who would be in charge of safety physically on the tracks. And I think that needs to be a priority for the general manager and the safety chief over the next couple of months. Meantime, an investigation is underway into the death of a man who was trying to board a Green Line trolley at North Station. Police say just after midnight, he was trying to catch the moving trolley when he kicked the side of it, lost his balance and fell. The Celtics' playoff game wrapped up at the Garden late last night. The retiring head of the Boston FBI says he's looking forward to a smooth transition to his successor. Joseph Bonavolanta has been special agent in charge of the New England region since 2019 and says he's proud of the partnerships he's established to fight major violent drug gangs. For us to be truly effective in mitigating these threats, we have to work consistently within the task force environments with our local, state, and federal law enforcement partners, which we do very well up here in New England, but just as importantly, to have that engagement with our community partners as well. The FBI has not yet named a replacement. A heads up, if you're planning to drive through the Ted Williams Tunnel over the next couple of nights, it will be shut down with detours to the Sumner Tunnel. The westbound side of the Ted will be closed for repaving tonight and tomorrow night starting at midnight and will reopen at 5 a.m. in time for the morning commute. It's the Red Sox and Reds at Fenway, 7-10 start. Brian Bale on the mound. It's the first of two games with Cincinnati as the Sox return from a long road trip out west. And if you've noticed a bit of haze in the air this afternoon, we've been seeing some smoke from wildfires in southwestern Nova Scotia that should move out in the next few hours. Clear skies tonight, low 49 degrees, 66 with sunshine. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline how businesses can attract, interview, and hire candidates. More at Indeed.com NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. We're waiting to see if a deal to raise the debt limit will pass its first major test in Congress. The House Rules Committee is voting on whether to advance the deal, which was reached by President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy over the weekend. The White House says this deal represents a compromise, but there are members on both sides of the aisle who are signaling their dissatisfaction with it. On the Republican side, members of the Freedom Caucus are urging their party to block the deal. And on the Democratic side, some progressives say while they stand with President Biden and want this bill to pass, they're still disappointed. That includes Congressman Greg Kassar of Texas. He serves as whip of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And we spoke to him earlier today before the House Rules Committee voted on this deal. Congressman Kassar, welcome. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, thanks for being with us. So assuming this proposal does advance, will you vote for this deal? This is not a both sides issue. There's really just one of the two political parties in this country who are willing to send us into default and devastate the entire American economy, and that's the Republican Party. Progressives and moderate Democrats are united around the ideal 
that America should pay its bills. Well, will you vote so for this deal to make sure that the debt, oh, yeah, no, very that the debt limit will be raised? going there next. But important first to note that the Democrats have been united from day one and will continue to make sure that there is not a default. So you're going to see some Democrats vote yes and some vote no. What about some you? Democrats will vote yes to get the deal done. So default will be avoided. And then progressives, including me, many are leaning no because we have to hold the line against people getting screwed, getting kicked off of vital food programs, getting kicked off of their child care assistance, losing health care or losing housing. This could have been worse, right? For example, veterans, people experiencing homelessness, those who grew up in foster care, they were all spared from some of the work requirement expansions that Republicans had wanted to see in this deal. Tell me why this current compromise just isn't good enough as it is now. So the Progressive Caucus has pushed and has helped make reduce the amount of damage. But the reason that this entire thing is ludicrous, and it's a lose-lose situation for people that care about the American people, is that the extremist Republicans holding the entire economy hostage don't care about the deficit. They've been caring about kicking a few people age 50 to 54 off of their meager food assistance. We've gone and talked about, okay, let's reduce the deficit by closing tax loopholes that let billionaire corporations get away with tax cheating. They said no. In fact, in this deal, one of my I hear you pointing blame. I hear you placing blame on extremists IRS on the other programs. side. But if I can just point out, I mean, for any deal to ultimately pass on the debt ceiling, people on both sides cannot have everything that they want in this deal. Do you at least acknowledge that? Well, let's acknowledge two things. First of all, this deal we all expect is going to pass. So we're going to avoid default. And compromise is necessary when you face a challenging situation, right. a hurricane, a pandemic. In this case, we're not facing that. It's a manufactured crisis. I know that, you know, the debt selling you believe should be abolished. Democrats had their best shot at making that a reality or just raising the debt ceiling on their own terms when they still controlled the House at the end of last year. But they did not. So let me ask you, I know that you were not in Congress at the end of last year, but do you blame your own party in part for missing that opportunity? Strategically, I think it is a failure on the part of those folks that are seeing that we're in a situation having to negotiate with people who really have not minded the potential of millions of people losing their jobs. We have to get their finger off of the nuclear button. And that means no longer having this kind of vote that used to, you know, a hundred different times. Do you wish your own party just said we're going to pay the more initiative at the end of last year to raise the debt ceiling on their own terms? I think we absolutely should have done that at the end of last year. And now we need to make sure we're never in this kind of situation again so that we can have a real discussion and a real compromise on our budgets, but not with the full faith and credit of the United States hanging over people's heads, where millions of community members who have nothing to do with this could lose their jobs or their homes or their health care. That's just not right. Congressman Greg Kassar, Democrat from Texas and whip for the Congressional Progressive Caucus, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on. J.P. Morgan Chase and other companies are committing millions to a San Francisco-based climate startup that will pull carbon from the air and store it underground. Climate reporter Laura Clivens with member station KQED takes us to the company's headquarters to see what that means. Sean Kinetic points to a stack of what looks like hay bales on a parking lot in an industrial part of San Francisco. 
All right, what's behind me is you'll see lovingly labeled bales of corn stover. So this is everything left over after the corn harvest. Leaves and stalks, you have cobs. All these leftovers from a nearby farm are full of carbon. They would normally get plowed back into a field or left to decompose, releasing stored carbon back into the air. Instead, this corn stover will get ground down to dust. Then we take that sawdust and we inject it into a reactor that's about a thousand degrees Fahrenheit. In just a few seconds, a viscous black goo forms. It looks like molasses and smells like barbecue sauce. This is bio oil. And Charm Industrial, which Kinetic helped found, is doing something interesting with it. The bio oil is pumped underground as a permanent carbon removal technology. It's injected deep down into old oil wells where it solidifies. Charm uses the same equipment fossil fuel companies extracted oil with in the first place. Charm isn't burying the bio-oil in California yet due to regulations, but they are in Kansas. That's where our well sites are, and that's where we're hiring. Bio-oil is one approach in the burgeoning field of carbon removal. Carbon removal refers to things you can do, whether it involves nature-based systems or technologies to literally pull CO2 out of the atmosphere. Danny Cullen Ward researches carbon removal as a fellow at American University. Scientists agree that to avoid catastrophic warming, humans need to stop putting climate-harming pollution into the air. And we need to draw some down. The world's forests and oceans naturally pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. But, and here's Cullen Ward again. The problem is if we don't intervene in these systems, they won't suck up enough because we put such an unfathomably large quantity of pollution in the atmosphere in the first place. Startups like Charm Industrial need money to develop carbon removal technologies. That's where the private sector is jumping in. A group of companies, including J.P. Morgan Chase, Stripe, Alphabet, and Shopify, plan to pay Charm millions of dollars. In exchange, the company will bury the bio-oil equivalent of what 31,000 passenger cars emit a year. That's just a tiny amount of what needs to come out of the atmosphere, but it's a start. Nan Ransahoff is head of climate at Stripe. We want to get more companies to the starting line and then help them get down the cost curve as quickly as possible so that we can build carbon removal solutions that have the potential to get to the scale that we need to solve the problem. The latest international climate change report calls for carbon removal, but a United Nations panel calls the technology unproven. People living in communities where bio-oil may get buried have worries of their own. Katie Valenzuela works with the environmental justice group, the Central Valley Air Quality Coalition. Every time we have this great new idea that we want to test out, it lands in the Central Valley somehow and ends up having unintended consequences that weren't foreseen that then we have to deal with. Valenzuela grew up in the Central Valley, where most of California's oil is drilled. That's why it's also a place considered highly suitable to store carbon. Valenzuela is okay with the idea of carbon removal, like what Charm Industrial is doing. But she worries oil and gas companies will use these technologies as an excuse to keep drilling and polluting her home. I wish that we could take care of the communities who needed it the most first. 
and then explore the other thing that we know we need to do. Regardless, California is betting big on pulling carbon from the atmosphere. The state plans to meet its future climate goals by removing and capturing about 100 million tons of carbon annually. That's roughly the same amount of pollution that comes from 22 million passenger cars in a year. For NPR News, I'm Laura Clivens in San Francisco. The Little Mermaid took in a great big haul at the box office this weekend. It was the fifth highest Memorial Day opening of all time, in spite of critics' generally crabby reviews. Well, NPR's Tilda Wilson went fishing for other opinions from the movie's target audience. There's a lot to love about Disney's live-action remake of The Little Mermaid. Maybe it helps to be five years old. Kalia, whose mom did not give her last name, saw the movie in Washington, D.C., she listed everything she liked. The fishes and the mermaid and the crab. This seaweed is always greener in somebody else's lake. Critics said the movie was all wet. Kalia would like a word with them. I told them, why are you being mean to the things that I like? What more is you looking for? Other young critics found The Little Mermaid to be an effective piece of cinema. Seven-year-old Nia Guglielmo found it sophisticated. There was a lot of jump scares. I liked it more than the first Little Mermaid because it looked more real. Something about you seems different. I can't quite figure it out. She got legs! Some people are annoyed that Disney keeps recycling its old intellectual property with versions of the same movie. Eight-year-old Sofia Casarubias did not care. She had never seen the original Little Mermaid. I like how Ariel and she found her match that she loved. Ariel had a boyfriend and it's really cute. Casarubias says the Little Mermaid has it all. Romance, comedy, tragedy. <laughs> Bring tissues. I think it's worth watching because you'll get your tears out because it's really sad. With an opening weekend that brought in more than $100 million and dedicated fans like these, Disney will be crying all the way to the bank. She's got everything. Tilda Wilson, NPR News. I've got gadgets and gizmos aplenty. I've got hooshes and what's-its galore. You want thingamabobs? thingamabobs? I got 20. But who cares? It's NPR News. I'm Garo Hagopian. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Catch us, too, on the WBUR app. Coming up in the next 20 minutes, details of a deadly incident during the Iraq War were buried by the Marines for years, including links to a powerful politician. A look at business next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Evita at ART. Experience the groundbreaking revival of the Tony Award-winning rock opera, don't keep your distance. Now through July 16th, amrep.org. And New Art Center in Newton, with full-day summer art camps for 1st through 12th graders. More information at newartcenter.org. On Wall Street, the Dow was down 50 points, the S&P 500 up just under a point, and the Nasdaq was up 42. Gas prices are ticking up as we head into the unofficial start of summer. AAA says regular is now averaging 3.52 a gallon in Massachusetts. That's up 8 cents from last week, but is a nickel lower than the national average. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. 
Tap and listen to WBUR anywhere this summer takes you. Listen live and catch up on anything you missed. Download or update the WBUR app right now. Checking sports, Red Sox and Reds at Fenway, 7-10 start. Brian Bayo on the mound. And in the forecast, if you've noticed uh, maybe a bit of a haze in the air this afternoon, we've been seeing some smoke from wildfires in southwestern Nova Scotia that should move out in the next couple of hours. Clear skies tonight, low 49 degrees. Tomorrow, sunshine with a high of 80. Clear tomorrow night, low 56. In Boston right now, 66 with sunshine. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with season two of The Tower, starring Gemma Whalen. This and more police dramas, including Line of Duty and The Responder, starring Martin Freeman. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from The Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive nature.org slash solutions. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. More than 300 executives, researchers, and engineers working on AI issued a dire statement today. It is just one sentence long, and it reads, mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks such as pandemics and nuclear war. NPR Tech reporter Bobby Allen joins me to discuss for this week's All Tech Considered. Bobby, that is pretty dire indeed. Um, Tell me more about who's issuing this warning. Yeah, a San Francisco nonprofit called the Center for AI Safety issued it. And as you noted, it's pretty alarmist, right? It doesn't get more doomsday than extinction by AI. I feel like I'm in an episode of Black Mirror or something. (laughs) You know, but, you know, many notable serious people in the AI world signed it. So... Uh, Sam Altman is one of them. He runs the Microsoft-backed OpenAI startup, which developed popular AI tools like image creator Dolly and the chatbot everyone's playing with these days, ChatGPT. The CEO of DeepMind, which is an industry-leading AI research lab run by Google, um, also signed it. And uh, this man named Jeffrey Hinton, who's considered the godfather of AI for his work on what's known as Uh, neural networks, which is kind of the basis of so many AI applications. And I actually talked to Hinton recently, and he echoed the sentiment that he now shares with 300 others in the statement. There's a serious danger that we'll get things smarter than us fairly soon, and that these things might get bad motives and take control. Politicians and industry leaders need to take that very seriously. This isn't just a science fiction problem isn't just a science fiction problem. But again, AI leading to humanity's extinction sure sounds like the sci-fi of of my 80s youth. How seriously are people taking this warning? Hinton says we should be worried, but other experts say we definitely should not be freaking out about humanity's extinction just yet, right? I think the extreme language here, Mary Louise, is really intended to attract attention and be sort of a wake-up call to policymakers and regulators. Now, within AI safety circles, there's this phrase that's getting pretty popular. You hear it all the time. It's called P-Doom, P for probability. And, you know, the probability that AI leads to doom. What does that doom look like? For some experts, their P-doom is AI taking over a power grid. For others, their P-doom is 
AI leading to mass job loss. Others say their P-Doom is already happening now, right? And it's AI supercharging the harms of social media, including the spread of misinformation. So yeah, the language in the statement is pretty over the top, but I think it points to a debate the AI community is having right now. And if you're right that this is intended as a wake-up call for regulators, how are regulators, how are lawmakers responding? Well, in Washington, there's growing awareness and real interest, but legislation has been slow to emerge. Meanwhile, across the pond in the EU, they're already debating some pretty specific proposals. Lawmakers there have floated something called the AI Act, which calls for sweeping regulations, including that tech companies would be forced to open up the black boxes of AI and show the world how much copyrighted information is in there. We don't know that right now. It would also hold companies responsible for how their AI is used in the world. But here's what's really interesting. You know, leading voices like Sam Altman, who recently appeared before Washington and urged for regulations. Mm -hmm. Well, when the EU started debating the specifics of this bill I just mentioned, he said, no, not so fast. It might not be possible to comply. Right. And that if the law does pass, open AI might have to pull out of the EU. So the cynical take here is these tech executives are asking for regulations. But, you know, they're kind of just looking like good guys um, right. when they know nothing might actually be done. Thank you, Bobby. Thanks, Mary Louise. And Paris Bobby Allen. Support for All Tech Considered comes from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. If hope is the thing with feathers, then spring is a great time of year to look up. Billions of birds head north during spring migration to nest and breed. And you can find them even in the densest of cities. NPR's Melissa Block sent this audio postcard from the wilds of our nation's capital. Here's the thing. You just have to tune your ears a bit. Filter out traffic and horns and focus on song. I've come out early on a Sunday morning to meet up with a few fellow birders. We'll be catching the tail end of spring migration. Good morning. I'm Melissa. Melissa, finally nice to meet you. Great to meet you too. Yeah. Tyke James bikes you, up. Uh, He's president of DC Audubon. He suggested we go birding in Fort Slocum Park. It's just a few blocks long, set among brick row houses. Step into the park, and you find yourself under a thick canopy of towering oak and elm. Pros and cons of being in here. It's very dense, so it's really great migratory stopover habitat. But, oh, peewee. Nice. But yeah, you're going to hear more than you see. <laughs> that little eastern wood peewee, it's likely migrated all the way up from South America this spring to breed. Peewee. You can't unhear it. Every time I hear a peewee, I'm like, there's a peewee. It's right there. This is Emmy Bagrati. People think when you're birding in a big city, you can't get to places like this. Mm -hmm. But honestly, with the exception of some ambient noise, I mean, would you know that you're in D.C. right now? And we're hearing a lot the burbly buzz of a blue-gray gnatcatcher, the insistent tea kettle, tea kettle of a Carolina wren. One of the smallest birds, but also one of the loudest. Pretty soon, we hear the raucous rasp of a great crested flycatcher. We hear eastern towies singing, drink your tea. 
And all of a sudden, Joe Stiles spots one of my favorite birds. Oh, 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 yeah, 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 did you see that? Oh, okay, yeah, there it is. Are you seeing it? Oh, it's so pretty. It's a spectacular male American redstart, black with bright orange patches that flash in the sun. It's on full display right now, which I know it's called a redstart, but I would think of it a little more orange. It's very much like a Halloween orange and black palette. Yeah. It's not red to me at all. Birders will often talk about their spark bird, the one that got them hooked. Joe Stiles is especially fond of loons. You know, it's a very melancholy call, which is very beautiful. If we can do it on my hands. Wow. wow. <laughs> impressive. So impressive, in fact, that the Merlin Bird app, which identifies audio of bird songs and calls, the app registered Joe doing that and reported that there was a loon nearby. No way! In the end, after about an hour and a half in the park, we've seen or heard... Chimney swift, red-bellied woodpecker, downy woodpecker, northern flicker. 23 species in all. Blue-gray gnatcatcher, Carolina wren. Not bad for a morning's amble in the heart of Washington, D.C. Blackpole warbler, northern cardinal, and as our last bird, the brown thrasher. Melissa Block, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up in the next 15 minutes, a conversation with former FBI Director James Comey about his new thriller, Central Park West. In sports, Red Sox and Reds at Fenway, 7-10 first pitch. Brian Bayo gets the start. In the forecast tonight, clear skies, low 49 degrees. Tomorrow, sunshine with a high of 80. Clear tomorrow night, low 56. Thursday and Friday are looking uh, sunny with highs hitting the mid to upper 80s. Right now in Boston, we've got uh, clear skies and 66 degrees. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. And the Worcester Art Museum with Frontiers of Impressionism, featuring works by over 30 artists, including Monet, Renoir, Cassatt, and more. Now open. WorcesterArt.org. In my job, balance is really important. I'm Maisha Roscoe, host of Weekend Edition. So when I look at my old minivan, I'm balancing on the one hand, new car payment, and on the other, driving around for another year with that smell of spilled milk in the back. Whenever the balance tips for your old car, give it a chance to do one more good deed. Donate it to this station and turn it into the programs we all love. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The White House is urging Congress to pass a bipartisan bill that would raise the nation's debt ceiling. Office of Management and Budget Director Shalanda Young says the bill represents a compromise with both sides making concessions. It's an agreement that not only prevents the first ever default in this country, but it will protect our hard-earned and historic economic recovery. It will protect our legislative achievements, including the legislation that 
uh, is creating good jobs in this country. President Biden says he feels good about the deal negotiated with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. The legislation, which would lift the borrowing limit for two years and cap some government spending, is expected to advance out of the House Rules Committee this afternoon. McCarthy says he plans to bring the bill up for a vote tomorrow. If it passes the House, it would then head to the Senate, where Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has promised quick action. Former First Lady Rosalind Carter has been diagnosed with dementia. Raul Bally from member station WABE has more on today's announcement from the Carter family. In a statement released by the Carter Center, the family says the 95-year-old former First Lady continues to live happily in her Georgia home with former President Jimmy Carter. Back in February, he entered hospice care at home after a series of hospital stays. In their statement, the family expressed hope that sharing this news about the former First Lady will lead to more conversations about mental health. The Carter family also notes her longtime advocacy for mental health and caregivers in particular. For NPR News, I'm Raul Bally in Atlanta. Stocks traded mixed today on Wall Street. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was down 50 points, closing at 33,042. The Nasdaq Composite up 41 points. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Garo Hagopian in Boston. Massachusetts Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is filing an amendment to the debt ceiling bill worked out between President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Presley opposes the legislation's order to restart student loan repayments. She calls the provision, along with the resumption of interest charges and debt collection, harmful. Presley wants the three-year pause to continue while the president's student debt cancellation order goes through a legal challenge. A Massachusetts Congressman Seth Moulton says he's uh, planning to support the deal on the borrowing limit. He says the agreement will prevent the U.S. from defaulting on its debt, but adds it's far from perfect. The final deal here does make some tough cuts. The work requirements that it's extending for people who need assistance have been proven by study after study uh, to not work. They are taking money away from IRS for enforcement, which is basically just a Republican gift to tax cheats. The House and Senate need to agree on the plan before June 5th in order to avoid a default. A report from the Greater Boston Food Bank says a third of people in Massachusetts are struggling to find enough to eat. President and CEO Catherine D'Amato says the state's high cost of living is forcing people to cut back on food spending. Sadly, people are choosing between buying food and paying for housing, transportation, health care, education, or other utilities. This forces people to make very difficult trade-offs, and it highlights the affordability challenges in Massachusetts. The report says food insecurity is higher among black, Hispanic, and LGBTQ plus households. The annual fishing derby on Lake Quinnipesaukee will be canceled next year because of the declining salmon population. Diana Timmons, the New Hampshire Inland Fisheries Division chief, says overfishing, river dams, and poor water quality are to blame, among other things. You know, habitats are changing, drought conditions are changing, um, invasive species introduction. So there's a lot more pressure on the resource than there used to be. She says the derby could return again in 2025 if the population of older fish rebound. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. 
The Red Sox are back from a long road trip out west. They host the Reds, 7-10 start, Brian Bale on the mound. And in the forecast, you may have noticed a bit of haze in the air this afternoon. They're from uh, southwestern Nova Scotian wildfires that uh, should be clearing out in the next couple of hours or so. Tonight, clear skies, low 49 degrees. Tomorrow, sunshine with a high of 80. Tomorrow night, clear skies, low 56. We're at 66 with sunny skies. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. A new NPR investigation reveals the cover-up of a deadly, friendly fire accident early in the Iraq War when a U.S. mortar hit American troops. NPR's Tom Bowman and Graham Smith of the Investigations Unit spent years discovering what really happened. And they tell the story in a new podcast called Taking Cover. A warning, the story contains the sound of gunfire. April 2004, Marines from Echo Company are hunkered down in a schoolhouse in Fallujah, Iraq. Down the street, they spot insurgent fighters rolling tires out into the street, piling them up. Then they rolled out another tire, and then another guy took a knee with the AK. Soon, the insurgents set the tires on fire, creating a smoke screen to shield their movements across the street. The Marines from 2nd Battalion, 1st Marines, exchange fire with the insurgents from the schoolhouse window and prepare for an attack. A decision is made to destroy that tire barricade by firing a mortar. As I'm lifting my flak jacket up to put it on, boom, a big shock wave, shrapnel's ripping through everyone. The Marine round didn't hit the barricade. It exploded in the courtyard of the schoolhouse. Lance Corporal John Smith. Everything was in slow motion and I mean, I'm crawling across the ground trying to get my rifle. I didn't even realize I got injured. I knew I fell. I knew an explosion went off, but everything hit so quick and fast, I felt no pain. It was just happening. Immediately, a massive firefight breaks out. Bill Skiles was the company first sergeant. He remembers the confusion. I thought some enemy blew himself up in our compound. My first thought. And that means we have people coming on the wire. So it was smoke. I couldn't see flashlights everywhere and screaming everywhere. We learned there was an investigation and that officers knew instantly it was friendly fire. Two Marines were killed, Brad Shooter and Robert Zerhide, and a dozen U.S. troops wounded. But when we requested documents about the incident, the Marine Corps told us they couldn't find any. As it turns out, the investigative report was hidden for years. It was never shared with the public until we forced it to release with a federal lawsuit. John Smith lost a leg and use of his left eye in the blast. Though he'd heard rumors it might have been friendly fire, he didn't know the truth until NPR told him. The fact that nobody has said anything concrete, no paperwork, the whole time, and I'm just now finding out there was even an investigation, like what was so big, 
about this incident and what did y'all have to hide? What did they have to hide? Well, we learned something else about this incident. A young officer in the command center that day plotting mortar targets was Marine Lieutenant Duncan Hunter Jr. His father, Duncan Hunter Sr., was then a congressman, chairman of the powerful House Armed Services Committee. One of the other officers in the command center was Lieutenant Colonel Greg Olson. Good to see you. He's now a three-star general. We arranged to talk with him at the Pentagon. I had a chance to get out to Illinois and collect some uh, contemporaneous notes. Wow. Olson recalled confusion in the command center that started with Lieutenant Hunter pointing to the wrong mortar target. Hunter was the artillery liaison officer. My recollection is that the artillery liaison officer identified the target on the big photographic map that we used. But months later, after we started reporting our findings, Olson called us back to the Pentagon, telling a completely different story. So are you saying that your recollection, having looked at your contemporaneous notes of seeing Duncan Hunter point at the larger map out of the two maps, you don't actually remember I, I had I have no contemporaneous notes. My recollection was based on memory and I didn't have it right the first time I talked to you. So what was Duncan Hunter doing? What was he pointing to? I don't recall him pointing to anything. Now, the congressman's son was never singled out for punishment. Olson and Hunter told the investigator he was still in training. After reviewing the report, Olson's boss, Colonel John Tulin, recommended Olson and two junior officers be disciplined. But Tulin's boss, Major General James Mattis, who later became Secretary of Defense, rejected all that. He cited the fog of war, saying he saw no intentional misconduct or criminal negligence. His decision effectively closed the book on the whole incident. We asked officers up the chain of command why the families and the wounded men weren't properly informed. Well, to be honest, I mean, I, I, I think I lost sight of this incident. John Tulin retired as a three-star. He still has a battle map from Fallujah above his desk in his study and a basket of memorial cards for all the men who died under his command. I mean, I can see how it happens, but should it happen that way? No. Your instincts, I think, are correct. And those questions should be answered. But the worst thing in the world to happen is to break that bond of trust between us and the public, the mothers and fathers who send their sons to war. And what about the congressman's son? Tulin remembers he was surprised when Hunter Jr. was reassigned to his lead combat unit after they were already in combat. What are your thoughts about people who say maybe they buried it because of Duncan Hunter? I lost complete faith in Duncan Hunter, but Duncan Hunter Jr. was a pain in the ass when he was a second lieutenant. Let's put it this way. I mean, most second lieutenants in artillery units don't get their butts chewed out by the regimental commander. Tulin says when Hunter showed up, he was poorly prepared. He describes a reckless young officer with disregard for basic safety protocols, not wearing his body armor or his helmet when he should have. Very cocky, didn't, didn't really, he wasn't the kind of guy that you, you'd want your son to be led by. We asked General Mattis why this case was so mishandled. He remembered the incident, but he wouldn't give us an interview just referred us to his comments in the report. The top Marine officer in Iraq at the time, James Conway, later went on to be Commandant of the Marine Corps. We sought an interview with him for months, but he wouldn't return our calls and emails. Finally, we went to his house, 
Other Marine generals have characterized this as the worst Marine-on-Marine-friendly fire in decades. But Conway told us he didn't even remember the incident. I'm telling you, I just, I'd be happy to sit down, but I don't okay. have any direct knowledge. And I'll be honest, I don't remember it even as the commandant. Yeah. So, you know, shame on me, I guess. Well, Conway never did sit down with us for an interview. He only sent a brief statement saying the Marine Corps corrected their failures to inform families as soon as it was discovered. What Conway didn't say was Congress forced the Marines to tell the truth during an obscure subcommittee hearing back in 2007 that happened because of the problems with other friendly fire deaths, like Pat Tillman. Tillman left an NFL career to join the Army Rangers, only to be accidentally killed by members of his own platoon in Afghanistan. Most of the men we talked to had no knowledge of the investigation until we gave them a copy. I know now. You guys provided me this. I never saw this. This is Bill Skiles the first sergeant who helped evacuate wounded Marines from the schoolhouse. How do we explain this? Because we're looking at this, again, never told when the investigation wrapped up, and the only reason it appears that they were told about the investigation was only because of Pat Tillman. And they covered, right? that, they covered that up, too, for a while. But what do, what, so so that means Shooter this? and Zerhead are nobodies. But Tillman is a household name. And what of Duncan Hunter actually both of them, we sat down with Hunter Sr. at a Washington-area hotel. He wrote a book called Victory in Iraq, and it includes details about that fight in Fallujah, but nothing about the friendly fire incident. Don't know about it. Yeah. We told him yeah. his son had given a statement in the report. And your son, because he, he was with 2-1, did he ever mention it? Uh, no, I mean... Uh, and, and, my, my, so one person had said that... that uh, they wouldn't be surprised if they buried it because they didn't want to piss you off. Do you buy that? Does that make sense to you that they would have, you know, I, I, I don't buy being, being sucked into an incident that I know nothing about. We only learned after our interview that as part of a congressional delegation to Iraq, Chairman Duncan Hunter Sr. traveled to Fallujah back in 2004, and he met with General Conway just days before Conway signed off on the Mattis recommendation to drop all punishments. And Duncan Hunter Jr., after the Marine Corps, he ran for his father's seat and won, but resigned 11 years later after pleading guilty to a felony for misusing campaign funds. President Trump pardoned him. Hunter Jr. dodged us for months. Finally, our colleague Steve Walsh caught up with him in San Diego. Uh, the Marine Corps handled this. They've looked into it. I was a lieutenant. Can you describe what you did that day? You were in the fire control room. There was no fire control room. It was an apartment complex in Fallujah. And so what did you do that day? I did artillery. Of course, there was a fire control room, and we know from the documents we found that he was there, plotting targets. Hunter wouldn't answer any other questions. One other big question emerged for us. Guys kept telling us about a third man killed by the mortar that day, an interpreter. He was never mentioned in the report, but a U.S. soldier who was there finally helped us unlock the mystery. I had my two soldiers, mm -hmm. and then my interpreter was uh, Shihab. And Shihab, yeah. was he, he was an Iraqi national? He was, yeah, yeah, he was. 
Dwayne Jolly recently retired as a sergeant major. He's still haunted by the memory of hiring Shahab, who initially didn't want to go to Fallujah, where violence was escalating. What I told him, I said, you know, don't worry, buddy. You know, if people start shooting at us, you just get behind me. I guarantee you, I'll take care of you. Mm. And that's the part, you know, in therapy that I really have had a hard time with uh, and still do. That I told him he'd be fine and then he gets killed. Yeah. You know, my hope has always been to find his family and maybe to get to Baghdad at some point. Man, um, if you do, I, you, I, you have to tell me. I would be so happy just to, you know, tell him, I don't know, just how much his memory still lives within me every single day, every single day. Well, we did find Shahab's family in Baghdad, and when we gave them a copy of the report, they were shocked to learn he was killed by friendly fire. They said a U.S. officer told them he was killed by terrorists. I'm Tom Bowman. And I'm Graham Smith, NPR News. They are the hosts of NPR's investigative podcast, Taking Cover. You can hear more about their trip to Iraq tomorrow on Morning Edition. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University Student Employment, connecting you to smart, reliable students for part-time work. Free job listings at bu.edu seo. Zoo New England. Zoo what makes you happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. ZooNewEngland.org. And... Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. I'm Garo Hagopian. Coming up in the next 20 minutes, it's been five years since the U.S. pulled out of the nuclear deal. A look at how close Iran may be to a bomb and what the U.S. can do to stop them. In sports, Red Sox and Reds at Fenway, 7-10 start. In the forecast tonight, we'll have clear skies, low of 49. Tomorrow, sunshine with a high of 80 degrees. Clear tomorrow night, low 56. In Boston right now, we've got sunshine and 66 degrees. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and counseling are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 5th. Semesteroff.com. And the Coolidge Corner Arts Festival, returning for its 43rd year this Saturday, 11 to 6. Artists, music, food trucks, wine and beer. CoolidgeCornerArtsFestival.com. Vermont recently removed its residency requirement to allow the terminally ill to access life-ending drugs. Medicine is different than it was a couple of generations ago, and people die differently, and we need new tools to address the suffering that sometimes comes with it. How public opinion and doctors' views are changing on medical aid in dying. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. As I read the new novel, Central Park West, there was a scene where I had to pause 
and chuckle. Now, this is a novel about a murder and about the mob, serious stuff. And the scene has to do with the notorious sniping and tension between the Manhattan DA and the U.S. Attorney's Office, which sit two blocks apart in New York City, and which, according to the author, do everything in their power to steal cases from each other. Now, what made me chuckle is who was writing this scene. James Comey, former director of the FBI, also former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, and now crime novelist Jim Comey. Welcome. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Why try your hand at fiction? Because an editor of nonfiction nudged me to, and at first I resisted. And the farther I got from the work, easier became to think about giving it a shot. And so I decided to try and found it addictive. And now I want this to be my job. Really? I, I did see that you've already written the sequel to this. So this is not just a, a fling for you. Yeah, it's not It's not a hobby for me. I I need to have a job. And I found this harder than nonfiction, but a lot more fun. And it would be wonderful if I could do this until I'm old and foolish. So I've already written the sequel. All right. Well, let's talk about this one. And I'll start by asking you to introduce us to Nora, who is your protagonist. She is a young prosecutor. I gather she may have more than a little bit of your daughter in her. Yeah. Nora Carlton is a federal prosecutor in Manhattan working in the violent and organized crime unit. It was inspired by my oldest, who, when I was writing this, was the chief of the violent and organized crime unit in Manhattan and was prosecuting Jeffrey Epstein's co-conspirator, Glenn Maxwell. Did you bounce any of your scenes off your daughter? As you yes, read? I insisted she read the whole thing and give me loving but uh, direct and brutal <laughs> feedback, and she leapt at the chance. And she gave me all kinds of ideas, including she pointed out, Dad, you have my office on the wrong floor. Oh, boy. And so I moved her office from six to four and apologized. You know, when you write fiction, you're always trying to figure out what details are going to bring this character to life for my reader. And one that stuck with me about your character, Nora, is that she shelled out for Brooks Brothers shirts, and then she paid to clean and press them every week. And you write that the reason is when she wore them in court, she was representing the United States of America. And the first time she rose in court and said, you know, Nora Carlton for the United States, your honor, she got chills and they had never fully gone away. Would you elaborate on that feeling? Because I'm guessing that's something you must have experienced. Yeah, I was capturing something that I felt. I remember that feeling of standing up in a federal courtroom and saying that. And it was at once this sense that I'm doing something that had purpose and was really important that I do in the right way. And I know it seems corny, but it's real. I mean, the people who are doing this work find that having the United States as a client to be a burden and a tremendous joy, one that makes the hair stand up when you back of your neck when you first identify yourself with it. Another character to ask you about, Benny. Describe who he is, and I'm curious if he was inspired by anyone. Benny Dugan is a six foot five, 250 pound Brooklyn native who is an organized crime investigator who works closely with Nora. And I knew the greatest organized crime investigator ever a guy named Kenny McCabe, who died way too early in 2006. And I've tried to capture the essence of Kenny in that character. The two of them have a back and forth where he calls her Ms. Smooth, a testament to her <laughs> being good on her feet, and she calls him Mr. Rough. I drew that from the regular routine that I had with Kenny McCabe. 
towards the end of the book, you have Benny deliver something of a sermon about the mission. He says, our job is to lock up bad people to protect good people. I've never really thought of our job as finding truth. Our job is to live in gray. Is that Benny talking or Jim Comey? Well, both. I mean, he's trying to channel something that I learned through my career, that there's a difference between truth and justice. You can know something in your heart of hearts, but the justice system is built around the question of, can you prove it? But it's something you learn when you deal with cases. Bad people sometimes get away, and we've set up the system that way so that we reduce the chances of of innocent people, of good people being unfairly convicted. Jim Comey, while I've got you, I'm going to throw you a question on a real-life case unfolding in a Manhattan courtroom to do with 34 felony counts of falsifying business records. These are charges to which Donald Trump has pleaded not guilty. With your former prosecutor's cap on, what do you make of how this has unfolded so far? I read the indictment and the accompanying statement of facts, and I don't know much more than that. I don't have a view on the merits because I don't know the facts, but... Uh I think this is wonderful in the sense that the American people can see how the rule of law works, especially in the case of a person who's tried to take a flamethrower to the rule of law in America. You have history with Donald Trump. You were his FBI director. He fired you in 2017. Um, Not yet four years into what was supposed to be a 10-year term as FBI director. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. I'll let people have that in their minds as I ask this next question. Can Trump get a fair trial in New York, in your view? Because he says he can't, that New York is politically biased against him. Oh, he can. And I, I think, at least the, the accounts that I've read of the civil trial involving E. Jean Carroll against Donald Trump show that he can. That a jury was selected in that case that included one person in particular, as I recall, who was a, a regular follower of right-wing media on radio. And a lot of people who hadn't followed the news, yes, he can get a fair trial. Now, of course, he'll take a flamethrower to it. He would argue that that E. Jean Carroll decision showed that the opposite is true since he was found liable, but go on. Yeah, I mean, he'll have set it up that any result would be unjust. And so you have to just push that noise to the side and look at the kind of jurors around a case like that, the kind of evidence they saw, and the the verdict that they returned in that civil case. They didn't find him liable for the top civil allegation, which was a forcible sexual assault, a rape, and found him liable for the lesser charges. So how is that a runaway jury that can't give Donald Trump a fair trial? That's nonsense. I'm remembering um, you've been on the show before. You came and spoke to my colleague Elsa Chang about your last book, and you told her the best thing that could happen to Donald Trump would be for him to be ignored, to be standing on the the front lawn at Mar-a-Lago in his bathrobe shouting at passing cars. Do you stand by that? Well, yeah, at that point, I didn't know that if he was in his bathrobe, he may have top secret sensitive compartment and information stuffed in the belt of his robe. And so his behavior has made it very difficult for that to be a reality. And I think it's important that the Justice Department and local prosecutors hold him accountable for what he's done. So I I think Donald Trump has made it that we can't leave him on the front lawn in his bathrobe yelling at cars. James Comey. He is former director of the FBI and now crime novelist. His debut novel is Central Park West. Jim Comey, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Mary Louise. Good to be with you. This is All Things Considered from NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance. Progressive is looking for individuals in a variety of career fields who want to help build a culture of inclusiveness. More information, including application, at Progressive.com careers. From BritBox, with Season 2 of The Tower, starring Gemma Whalen. This and more police dramas, including Line of Duty and The Responder, starring Martin Freeman. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Masters in Applied Analytics at Boston College. Flexible, rigorous, relevant. Help manage data and insights to shape industry. bc.edu slash analytics. I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Iran's nuclear capabilities are a major concern for the Biden administration. They're only a couple of weeks away from having enough. If they decided to enrich uranium to weapons grade, they'd be very close to having enough for one bomb. More on what the U.S. is doing and is willing to do to prevent that from happening. It's Tuesday, May 30th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Garo Hagopian. Also this hour, the House is returning to consider a bill that would avert a historic default. While President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy both see the measure as a needed compromise, some lawmakers from both sides aren't convinced it's a good deal. And a landmark appeals court ruling would shelter members of the Sackler family from lawsuits linked to opioids and their company, Purdue Pharma. It's 5.01. First, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Ahead of some key votes in Congress, both sides in the debt ceiling debate are continuing to push their respective agendas. That includes right-leaning Republicans and left-leaning Democrats, both of whom feel they're giving up too much. Today at a briefing, White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre said it's in essence what the tentative deal reached this past weekend is all about. Negotiations require give and take. No one gets everything that they want. That's how divided government works. But the president successfully protected core democratic priorities and the historic economic progress that we have made over the last two years. A key test is unfolding right now as the House Rules Committee considers the 99-page bill to raise the debt ceiling, which would next go to the full House for vote expected tomorrow. Russian President Vladimir Putin is accusing Ukraine of carrying out a wave of drone attacks, as he puts it, terrorist activity on the Russian capital Tuesday morning local time. NPR's Charles Maines reports Putin says he's ordering security forces to increase air defenses around Moscow. Speaking in Moscow, Putin claimed Ukraine had launched the drones in response to a successful Russian airstrike on Ukraine's military intelligence headquarters several days prior. In response, Putin said the authorities in Kiev had chosen what he called a different path, one aimed at intimidating Russia and its citizens in their homes. Russia's defense ministry said eight drones were intercepted or otherwise prevented from reaching their targets, yet city officials say several 
several residential buildings sustained minor damage. Ukraine has denied involvement in the drone attacks, which came just hours after Russia launched its own drone strikes on Kyiv, one of a wave of Russian attacks on the Ukrainian capital in recent weeks. Charles Maines, NPR News. Moscow. Prosecutors in New York are dismissing as meritless claims by attorneys representing FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried that a judge should toss out criminal charges against him. The founder of the cryptocurrency exchange is accused of stealing from investors in his multi-billion dollar cryptocurrency fund. Stocks ended the day on a mixed note as Wall Street continues to watch for signs of progress on the debt limit deal. As NPR's David Gurr reports, the index was led higher by shares of AI companies. Wall Street was cheered by this weekend's announcement of a deal in principle between President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Yields on short-term U.S. government bonds have come down, reflecting the belief among many investors that there's now less of a risk of default. But time's ticking. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says it's likely the U.S. will be unable to pay its bills on June 5th unless this agreement gets through Congress. Trading was volatile, and while energy stocks took a hit as the price of oil dropped, the chipmaker NVIDIA joined a small club of companies that have had a market cap of a trillion dollars or more. David Gura, NPR News, New York. The tech-heavy Nasdaq was up 41 points. The Dow fell 50 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Garo Hagopian in Boston. The MBTA is investigating the death of a Green Line passenger at North Station around midnight last night. WBUR's Andreo Perdomo Hernandez has the latest. The Tees Police Department says a man who attempted to board the Green Line lost his balance and fell under the trolley as it departed the station. Boston EMS confirmed that several units responded to North Station after receiving a trauma call but the man had already died and the medical examiner's office was called. The man's name has not been released. A spokesperson for the T said they will consult and confer with the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office during their investigation. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Meantime, the T has less than a week to give the feds a new plan to improve worker safety. The Federal Transit Administration says track workers are at immediate risk. The agency rejected the T's first safety plan as not doing enough and wants the focus on immediate actions, not long-range goals. The T, which has till next Monday to submit a plan, says it's cooperating with the FTA. Political leaders and union nurses are fighting to keep open the maternity ward at Lemonster Hospital. State Senator John Cronin is asking the State Department of Health and Human Services for help. Because pulling a labor and delivery unit from two gateway cities, from Fitchburg and Lemonster, in a region that is growing, uh, in a region with an underserved immigrant population and a concentration of poverty, is absolutely unacceptable. UMass Memorial Health says it needs to close the ward because of staff shortages and a decline in births. The closure is planned for September. Moderna is getting a $3 million tax break from the state to create more jobs at its manufacturing facility in Norwood. The COVID vaccine maker is among more than 40 life science companies getting tax incentives to hire more workers. Meantime, Takeda Pharmaceutical will receive just under $2 million to add 125 jobs in Lexington. That's despite the company's recent layoff of close to 200 people. In the forecast tonight, uh, clear skies, low 49 degrees. Tomorrow, sunshine with a high of 80. We're at 66 clear skies. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Five years. That's how long it's been since the U.S. walked away from the nuclear deal with Iran. Ask Iran's foreign minister about the prospects for a new deal with the U.S., and here's what you'll hear. This window will not be open forever. That is what Hossein Amir Abdullahian told me through an interpreter in Tehran earlier this year. Here he is a month later on CNN. The window for an accord is still open. But this window will not remain open forever. You'll hear near-identical language in speeches and interviews going back to 2021. Funny thing is, you will hear the same sense of urgency when you question American diplomats. Here's Antony Blinken, U.S. Secretary of State, talking to me last year. My Louise, we're, we're very, very short on time. The runway is very short. It was then-President Trump who, five years ago this month, yanked the U.S. out of the nuclear deal, known as the JCPOA, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. What followed is the U.S. reimposed crushing sanctions. Over time, Iran stopped adhering to the limits the deal had imposed. And day by day, its nuclear program crept forward. One thing is true. They have amassed enough uh, nuclear material for several nuclear weapons. Not one at this point. That's Rafael Grossi, head of the IAEA, the United Nations Nuclear Monitor, speaking to European lawmakers in January. Doesn't mean Iran has a nuclear weapon, Grossi says, but... The trajectory is certainly not a good one. So what now? We're going to spend these next few minutes considering that question, starting with Rob Malley. Today, he's the U.S. Special Envoy for Iran. He was the lead White House negotiator on that 2015 agreement that the Trump administration walked away from. How close is Iran to a bomb? So, I mean, the, the answer to that question is in two parts. First is the question of enrichment of, of uranium. And we know, we've said publicly, that they're only couple of weeks away from having enough. If they decided to enrich uranium to weapons, great. They'd be very close to having enough for one bomb. I think the other question is how long it would then take them to have a bomb, to have the means of delivery. That's classified information I can't get into, but it would take longer. But we are focused very much on deterring Iran from making that decision to enrich at weapons grade. I mean, they're there basically in terms of having the nuclear material that they would need to do. If they made that decision, they would have the uh, weapons grade uranium within a short period of time. So I put questions along these lines to Iran's foreign minister. Will Iran build nuclear weapons? Uh, We have. And he told me through an interpreter, we have high capabilities when it comes to peaceful nuclear energy. However, however, when it comes to our beliefs and values, we do not pursue the making of a nuclear bomb. So Rob Malley, he says they're not pursuing a nuclear bomb. Do you believe him? So first, our intelligence community has made the assessment public that we believe that at this point they have not made the decision to pursue a bomb. We're not going to rest on that assessment, and that's why it's very important for us, and President Biden has made clear that we will not allow Iran to acquire a nuclear weapon. We will use deterrence to make clear to them that all options are on the table if we conclude that they're taking steps that are tantamount to decision to acquire a bomb. But we also will pursue diplomacy because we think that's the most verifiable and sustainable way to prevent them from getting a bomb. When you say all steps necessary, when you say Iran must not be allowed to get a bomb. What, if anything, at this point, can the U.S. actually do about it? So 
First, as I said, and this has been said from for the last two and a half years, our preference is a diplomatic option. I think it's been proven to be the most effective way and the most sustainable way to make sure that Iran doesn't acquire bomb, and we have a credible diplomatic path. But we also have a credible deterrent path. In other words, the president has said all options are on the table. You could imagine what that means. He has said explicitly that the military option will be on the table. It is far from the preferred option, but he will do what it takes to make sure Iran doesn't acquire bomb. And we hope that we could resolve this through diplomatic means, and we're prepared to go down that path. What does a credible diplomatic path look like at this point? The U.S. doesn't talk to Iran and vice versa. No, the U.S. doesn't talk to Iran because, uh, I mean, we don't negotiate directly with Iran because Iran has decided not to go down that path. But we came very close to reaching a deal last August. In fact, all of the countries that were negotiating, whether it was the U.S., its European partners, Russia, China, all were in agreement with the, the proposal that had been put on the table by the European Union. Iran turned its back on that deal. Since that time, a lot has happened. Iran has engaged in a brutal repression of its peaceful protesters. It has delivered drones that Russia is using for its brutal invasion of, uh, of Ukraine. And its nuclear program has advanced. So which been complicates, which complicates efforts to negotiate with them. Yeah. But Iran knows that if it wants to go down that path, we're prepared to do it. Of course, we will not ignore the other issues that we face with Iran, whether it's the uh, detainment of several American uh, citizens, hostages, and we're engaged in indirect talks to get them out, or the other threats that Iran presents to our people and to our personnel in the region. Is the nuclear deal of 2015 the one you negotiated for President Obama, is it dead? You know, I've said this in the past. My job is not to, uh, I'm not a necrologist. My job is not to pronounce uh, death certificates. But is there any movement on it? Our goal is to reach a diplomatic outcome with Iran that would verifiably ensure that Iran can't acquire a nuclear weapon. We're not there yet, of course. And as I said, Iran is the one that turned its back on a very realistic deal. Although it was so the we'll U.S. To... that walked out of the 2015 nuclear deal. And that is true. And the president and the Secretary of State have said it, and National Security Advisor said it only two weeks ago. It was a reckless decision that put us in a much worse situation. I guess but... it prompts the question, if you were Iran, would you sign another deal with the U.S., knowing that the U.S. has broken its word on this in past and knowing that it's possible the Biden administration may be gone in two years? That's a decision for them to make. They could continue on the current path, which has brought real economic problems for them. We will not be lifting our sanctions as long as we can't enter into another uh, nuclear deal. If they believe that they're better off without one, that will be their choice. At some point, does the North Korea example become instructive? By which I mean the U.S. didn't want North Korea to get nuclear weapons either, but it did, and the U.S. is having to hold its nose and live with it. That's not a scenario that we're contemplating at all. It would not be in their interest, and it's not something that the President Biden would permit. Rob Malley, thank you. Thank you. He is President Biden's special envoy for Iran. So is he right that the U.S. can stop Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon should it decide to do so? A question for our next guest, Iran expert Vali Nasser. He is a professor at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. And Professor Nasser, fact check for us, if you would, that assertion that the U.S. is not going to let Iran get a nuclear weapon. Realistically, can the U.S. stop them at this point? It's not going to be easy. In other words, the U.S. could use military option against Iran, but it will not necessarily kill the program. And in fact, it will then push Iran to make the very decision 
that Rob Malley said Iran has not made yet, which is to acquire nuclear weapons. So the United States then would really have to contemplate uh, continuing a war with Iran until it takes nuclear weapons away from Iran, which means a kind of military presence in the region that the United States does not want to contemplate and may not be successful at doing it. Fact check, one more thing we just heard there from Rob Malley, that Iran has not yet decided whether to go nuclear or not. Does that square with your analysis? I I think so. I think for the longest period of time, Iran has really dangled its nuclear program as a way to get the United States to lift sanctions on Iran. We will mothball this program that you're really very concerned about if you actually lift sanctions on us so we can have a semi-normal economy and, and govern our country. That trust has broken down. In other words, Iranians are no longer convinced that the nuclear program will actually get sanctions lifted unless it's a much, much bigger program, which is what they're trying to do. Mm. But, but that has brought them much closer to actually crossing the red line and becoming a nuclear state. Let's step back and consider an alternative. You have co-authored a piece uh, that's in Foreign Affairs magazine this month. The headline is, the path to a new Iran deal, a regional agreement, could succeed where Washington failed. Valley Nasser, briefly sketch out your argument. Well, uh, currently it does not look like we can get to a nuclear deal uh, with Iran on the basis of the 2015 nuclear deal, because neither side trusts the other one. The United States wants concessions from Iran that Iran is not willing to give to the United States directly and to the Europeans, and they're not even able to talk anymore. Also, the United States, given pressure even in Congress on the administration, is not willing to lift sanctions or give Iran money that Iran needs. So so engaging the region is a way of providing a political pathway to break the deadlock that the JCPOA is facing currently. You heard me asking about North Korea that the U.S. has learned to live with a nuclear North Korea. Is that a possibility with Iran? Well, uh, Iran could end up looking like North Korea down the road. That analogy is not incorrect. In other words, the United States may be doing all the saber rattling, talking about all options being on the table. But in the end, the Iranians may calculate that the United States right now, at this moment in time, after the Iraq experience with Ukraine on the table, is not going down the path of war with Iran. And as a result, the the red line of what is tolerable with Iran will keep moving. Hmm. So this is not out of the ordinary to think that Iran will continue to enrich material, will become more dangerous, but also will become poorer, more radical, and uh, a more difficult problem for the United States down the road. Vali Nasser is professor at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. To sum up, the U.S. does not want Iran to get a bomb. Iran says it does not want to get a bomb, even as it enriches uranium closer and closer to weapons grade. And while neither Washington nor Tehran will pronounce the nuclear deal dead, Grossi, the U.N. nuclear chief, calls it an empty shell. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. You're listening to WBUR. Catch us on air at 90.9 FM and online at WBUR.org and the WBUR app. I'm Garo Hagopian. Coming up, details of a landmark appeals court ruling that would shelter members of the Sackler family from lawsuits linked to opioids and their company, Purdue Pharma. Business News next.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Nuance. The Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX, is designed to automate clinical documentation so physicians can spend more time caring for patients. Learn more at nuance.com WBUR. On Wall Street, the Dow was down 50 points, the S&P 500 up just under a point, and the Nasdaq was up 42. There is expected to be a shortage of seasonal workers on Cape Cod again this summer. Before the pandemic, there were about 5,000 workers on the Cape with foreign visas, and now there's about half that. Paul Nedzwicki with the Cape Cod Chamber of Commerce is asking visitors to be understanding. You know, we are a a community of 15 towns and a... uh, population of about 235,000 people year-round, and that population triples in the summer. Patience is is always good. He blames a lack of seasonal housing for the shortage. It's 519. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Bionova Scientific, a biologics CDMO providing development and GMP manufacturing services to small and mid-sized biopharmaceutical companies. BionovaScientific.com, where concept becomes cure. You're part of the WBUR community. That's why you're invited to our next virtual community advisory board meeting. It's Wednesday, June 7th from 4 to 6.30 p.m. Details at WBUR.org slash open meetings. In the forecast, we've got clear skies tonight, low 49 degrees. Tomorrow, bright sunshine with a high of 80. We're at 66 with sunshine in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. If you live with kids, you may recognize this. Oh, how did he hit it off? One more shot. The sound of kids playing video games. Since the pandemic, kids spend more time online. And that is prompting more research on the impact of virtual activities on children. As part of our ongoing series, Living Better, NPR's Yuki Noguchi wanted to find out more about video games. My brief stint in gaming ended in the mid-1980s, when a pocket-sized electronic game my grandfather bought at a Tokyo toy store broke. My parents were not sad to see it go. To them, it seemed like television, and prevailing wisdom then said TV rotted kids' brains. I carried these notions with me into parenthood. Clinical psychologist Kelly Dunlop talks to plenty of parents like me. One of the most difficult things about video games is that they have this really bad rap, that they're brain rot, they're stupid, they're not productive, and therefore bad. Dunlap is a parent, too, but one who appreciates games. She designs them and is community director for Take This, a mental health advocacy group within the gaming community. She says gaming and its effects on child development are misunderstood. You can use games to improve your social connections and to practice feeling emotions that we normally avoid, like guilt or grief or shame. A lot of games bring those feelings out in us. And they give us a space to play with those feelings. She says these are benefits not observed with TV or social media, which are passively consumed and more about marketing. That had not occurred to me. 
My two boys are 12 and 13. They're growing up in a digital world in a way I did not. I'm lucky. My sons are healthy, hardworking, and kind to their chronically frazzled single mom. They've made raising them relatively easy and joyful even in adolescence. Yet no amount of yelling, no games on school nights, or not before dinner, worked. When they were young, I banned shooter games, but since middle school, bans have felt futile. So I asked experts who study gaming and children for advice, and several consistent themes emerged. One is to stop my obsession with limiting it. Like many people, I long for a recommended daily cap on game time, the way nutritionists advise on grams of sugar. Doesn't exist, Dunlap says. Research has shown again and again and again that time spent playing video games is not predictive of mental health outcomes. Because, again, gaming's effects differ from those of social media. Michael Rich directs the Center on Media and Child Health at Boston Children's Hospital. He says parents should instead take stock of time spent outside gaming. Homework, chores, do they play outside? Why kids play games varies. Shy kids might find it easier to socialize there. Maybe it's a stress outlet. Rich tells parents to simply play with their child to find out. What's happening is that you are saying, I love you, I respect you, I want to understand what is engaging you here. Which is how I ended up playing again after three decades. Okay, remind me again. Left click to shoot. With Koji, okay. my 12-year-old, patiently tutoring. Oh, oh, I hit him, I hit him. Why isn't he dying? Hey. I have to reload. What am I doing? I'm scoping <gasps> in. So no, shooting. hold this, hold this, and then shoot. No, oh, you died. They're shooting. Oh, what? <laughs> As I start over, I see who else is playing. Invites pop up from people looking to team up. These are the, your friends? Yeah, that's Ryan. That's Ryan, okay. Yeah. It's reassuring to know he's playing with actual friends. That's key because gaming is very social. British psychologist Peter Etchell says that's part of what makes games powerful training grounds. He studies behavioral effects of gaming at Bath Spa University. He says games involving quests, battles, or creative projects, for example, are very complex tasks. It requires very kind of precise team building, thinking about timings and placement, good communication skills to coordinate with people. It's doing that sort of kind of coordinating work that's really useful for all sorts of things. He says games can teach many types of skills. Why? They motivate users to improve by practicing over and over. So another reason to play is to know what your child actually takes away from the game. For example, I asked Koji to teach me how to make my avatar dance. It's kind of like a toxic thing. So if you like kill somebody and you like start dancing on them, that's like kind of toxic. Oh, it is? Yeah. I'm glad I asked. Koji assures me he limits contact with unsportsmanlike people by interacting mostly with friends. Ohio University professor Jesse Fox studies game culture and says toxic behavior can thrive in games because parents tend not to monitor those spaces. Most often, she says, it takes the form of harassment of female gamers. Games for girls aren't unlike other spaces where girls can be shut out. Fox says some deal with harassment by hiding their gender. Many quit gaming altogether. She says it's on parents like me, with sons, to listen in on conversations, discipline bad conduct, just as I would offline. Parents can also help find games with more inclusive culture by design. 
For example, on Fortnite, my sons play using female avatars almost exclusively. I asked Kenzo, my 13-year-old, why. That's like the culture of the game, I guess. The girls are seen as it means you're trying hard or like you're good at the game. So do you feel like you know whether a person is a girl or a boy on this game in real life? No. I realized what I had not understood. Games are just new spaces with different social dimensions and cultures. Many things are possible in video games, good, bad, or just plain wild. But isn't that also true of real life? I feared technology had turned playtime into an entirely different, scarier beast. It hasn't. Nor have the fundamentals for parenting around games changed either. You love them, support them, and help them navigate as best you can. Yuki Noguchi, NPR News. To news now of an alleged Russian spy turning up in Sweden. He's white, about 15 feet tall, weighs around a ton, and is an excellent swimmer, a beluga whale. As NPR's Rob Schmitz reports, locals are convinced the giant mammal has been trained by the Russian military. The beluga whale that locals have named Valdemir, Val being Norwegian for whale, first showed up four years ago along the Norwegian coast, says marine biologist Sebastian Strand. The very peculiar thing with Valdemir is he arrived with a harness strapped to him, which led to property of St. Petersburg. That, of course, sparked a whole bunch of theories on his origins. The most prominent one? Valdemir was trained by Russia's military for intelligence purposes. He is, without a doubt, trained because he responds to, or used to at least, respond to common Russian training signals. And several of the behaviors that we see him repeat even to this day are things that we know that the military whale programs also train the whales to do. Russia has neither confirmed nor denied Valdemir is one of their own, but both the U.S. and Russia are known to have military training programs incorporating aquatic mammals. Strand works for the nonprofit One Whale, devoted to caring for Valdemir. In fact, when we reached him, he was on a boat following the whale. Yeah, some probably 30 seconds ago. Strand and his colleagues are worried about Valdemir because it's clear he's been trained by humans and has a hard time finding food by himself. So he's constantly seeking human interaction. There are viral videos of Valdemir picking up a camera dropped by a kayaker, another picking up a woman's phone. Strand thinks Valdemir's lonely. A big part of our goal is also reuniting him with other Stoicone species. And if he ever does, he can leave his spying career for the humans behind him. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Berlin. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. I'm Garo Higopian. Coming up in the next 20 minutes, federal and state lawmakers are out with a series of bills to restrict foreign ownership of agricultural land. This follows a Chinese spy balloon that floated across the U.S. earlier this year. Beyond listening, your inbox is the easiest way to follow the news from WBUR. Each weekday morning, WBUR Today is a quick read on what matters most in Boston and beyond. Subscribe now at WBUR.org slash newsletters. In sports, it's the Red Sox and Reds at Fenway. 7-10 start. Brian Bayo on the mound, the first of two games with Cincinnati as the Sox return from a long road trip out west. In the forecast tonight, clear skies, low 49 degrees. Tomorrow, sunshine with a high of 80. Clear tomorrow night, low 56. We're at 65 with sunshine in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Ranked by U.S. News & World Report as best in New England for primary care education. Learn more at umassmed.edu. 
Vermont recently removed its residency requirement to allow the terminally ill to access life-ending drugs. Medicine is different than it was a couple of generations ago, and people die differently, and we need new tools to address the suffering that sometimes comes with it. How public opinion and doctors' views are changing on medical aid in dying. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The House is gearing up to vote on a bipartisan bill that would raise the nation's debt ceiling. If the bill passes the House on Wednesday, it would next head to the Senate. After weeks of marathon talks, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer praised the compromise announced by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Biden over the weekend. When this bill arrives in the Senate, It is my plan to bring it to the floor as quickly as possible for consideration. Senators must be prepared to act with urgency to send a final product to the president's desk before the June 5th deadline. That June 5th deadline is the earliest the U.S. could default on its debt, according to the latest projection from the Treasury Department. A group of tech industry leaders are warning that artificial intelligence technology could eventually pose a threat to humanity. As NPR's Bobby Allen reports, it's the latest pushback in the debate about the rapid deployment of AI services. The letter is just 22 words, but it has caused a splash. Quote, mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks such as pandemics and nuclear war. It was issued by the San Francisco nonprofit, the Center for AI Safety, and it's signed by more than 300 executives, researchers and engineers in the AI field. While the statement does not offer any possible solutions, lawmakers in the U.S. and Europe are currently grappling with how best to rein in AI tools as fears grow about AI's impact on misinformation, copyright infringement and job displacement. Bobby Allen. NPR News. Stocks traded mixed today on Wall Street. The Dow was down 50 points at the close. The Nasdaq Composite traded higher, up 41. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Garo Hagopian in Boston. The MBTA has to submit a new safety plan to regulators by next Monday. The Federal Transit Agency is rejecting the T's earlier proposal, calling it insufficient. Stacy Thompson, the executive director of the local transit advocacy group Livable Streets, tells WBUR's Radio Boston the feds want the T to focus on critical issues and staffing. One thing they noted, again, is the need to hire more people on the ground. So we have the right leadership in place, but they, the T has really struggled to hire the appropriate folks who would be in charge of safety physically on the tracks. And I think that needs to be a priority for the general manager and the safety chief over the next couple of months. Meantime, an investigation is underway into the death of a man who was trying to board a Green Line trolley at North Station. Police say just after midnight he was trying to catch the moving trolley when he kicked the side of it, lost his balance, and fell. The Celtics' playoff game wrapped up at the Garden late last night. The retiring head of the Boston FBI says he's looking forward to a smooth transition to his successor. Joseph Bonavolanta has been special agent in charge of the New England region since 2019 and says he's proud of the partnerships he's established to fight major violent drug gangs. For us to be truly effective in mitigating these threats, we have to work consistently within the task force environments with our local, state, and federal law enforcement partners, which we do very well up here in New England. But just as importantly, to have that engagement with our community partners as well. 
The FBI has not yet named a replacement. One of the Massachusetts spellers competing in the Scripps National Spelling Bee is out. Ten-year-old Tanoshi Inamata of Alston was among the youngest competitors. He was eliminated today in a second preliminary round on the word Coragenda, which means a list of corrected errors. The other Massachusetts speller, nine-year-old Adersh Venkanagani of Acton, just advanced to the quarterfinals tomorrow. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. The Red Sox return from a long road trip out west. They play the Cincinnati Reds, Fenway, 7-10 start, Brian Bayo on the mound. In the forecast, tonight uh, we'll see clear skies, low 49 degrees, tomorrow sunny with a high of 80. 65 with sunshine, this is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. And from Ion Television, presenting the Scripps National Spelling Bee. The two-night event airs Wednesday, May 31st and Thursday, June 1st at 8, 7 central on Ion. Learn more at spellingbee.com. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. In a bit, we'll get an update on where things stand with the debt ceiling agreement, including what vocal opponents on both sides of the aisle have to say about it. First, though, to a landmark ruling today in New York, where a federal appeals court has cleared the way for a bankruptcy deal in involving Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin. The deal is controversial. It shelters the company's owners, members of the Sackler family, from future opioid lawsuits. NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann has been following this case. Hey there. Hi, Mary Louise. Hey. So what's your read on what today's ruling actually will mean? Well, really, it means two big things. First, it means after years of legal wrangling, members of the Sackler family who earned billions from the sale of OxyContin won't face personal lawsuits over their alleged role in this addiction crisis that uh, has killed hundreds of thousands of Americans. Uh, but there's something else here. This ruling continues to amplify the power of federal bankruptcy courts. This bankruptcy deal involving Purdue Pharma protects the Sacklers legally even though they never filed for bankruptcy. Yeah, stay on that point for a second. I'm trying to wrap my head around how the Sacklers win immunity from lawsuits from a bankruptcy court if they if they never declared bankruptcy. Yeah, this is hugely controversial. The Sacklers hashed out a deal with state and local governments who sued Purdue Pharma where they'll pay between five and six billion dollars out of their personal fortunes. They'll also give up control of their company. That still leaves the Sacklers with a lot of money. But the bankruptcy court ruled that this was a way to get as much cash value as quickly as possible to creditors. I spoke about this with Ryan Hampton, who was himself addicted to OxyContin and later helped negotiate this deal. He'll get a payout and he says it is time to end this legal fight. We need to get what we can get right now and put this bankruptcy behind us. We know that there are widespread systemic injustices in the United States bankruptcy code that allowed the Sacklers to be shielded. But at this point, that is an issue that needs to be taken up by Congress. For the IRS. 
So now victims and their families are going to get $750 million in settlements from this deal. The Sacklers and Purdue Pharma also sent statements to NPR today praising this ruling. Brian, circle back to a point you made a moment ago about how this ruling would continue to amplify the power of federal bankruptcy courts. Does that suggest precedent could go beyond this one opioid case? Absolutely. There's a huge legal fight underway across the U.S., Mary Louise, over how much power federal bankruptcy courts should wield. More and more wealthy individuals and companies that aren't bankrupt are asking bankruptcy judges to shield them from lawsuits in exchange for sizable payouts like this one promised by the Sacklers. So in this new ruling, the Second Circuit found that in a lot of those bankruptcy cases, uh, courts can approve the deals, effectively shielding rich firms and rich individuals from lawsuits. I spoke about this with Lindsay Simon, who studies bankruptcy law at the University of Georgia, and she says this means more wealthy corporations will likely try this. I think it will fortify companies' desire to use Chapter 11. That will continue, and I think it will just have more fuel. It's important to point out some regions of the U.S. federal appeals courts haven't approved these bankruptcy deals, so today's ruling is big. But it's going to take action by Congress or the U.S. Supreme Court to settle this legal fight nationally. So far, the Supreme Court has declined to take on this issue, and bankruptcy reform has stalled in Congress. Yeah, and just briefly, where does all this leave the Sacklers? Well, they're going to remain one of the wealthiest families in the U.S., uh, but they've taken a big hit to their reputation. They were once famous philanthropists. Now many medical schools and museums across the world have stripped their names from art galleries and, and displays. So uh, th their reputation has uh, taken a big hit over the last two years. NPR's Brian Mann, thank you. Thank you. All right. House lawmakers are preparing to vote on a deal to raise the debt ceiling. The bill is the result of negotiations between the White House and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. It would lift the nation's borrowing limit until after the next presidential election. It would cap discretionary spending for the next two fiscal years, cut planned funding for the IRS, and enact tougher work requirements for some adults to receive benefits like food stamps. NPR congressional reporter Barbara Sprunt joins us now from the Capitol to talk about the latest. Hey, Barbara. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so this House vote is expected tomorrow, right? Like, does it have the support that is needed to pass? If you ask the Speaker and his allies, they'll say they're confident they have the votes for this to pass. Leaders of both parties are working behind the scenes, making phone calls to try to whip up support from members. But remember, this, like other deals in divided government, must have bipartisan support in order to pass. Exactly. Well, I know that there's been a bit of a revolt from conservative mm -hmm. members who are not happy with this compromise deal. What are they saying exactly? And what does their lack of support mean for the speaker here? Well, there was never the expectation that members of the Conservative Freedom Caucus were going to be completely happy with a compromise <laughs> piece of legislation. That's sort of to be expected with a compromise deal. What is new is they are lobbying really hard to get other Republicans to vote no on the bill. Here's Texas Congressman Chip Roy. Not one Republican should vote for this deal. Not one. If you're out there watching this, every one of my colleagues, be very clear, not one Republican should vote for this deal. It is a bad deal. Roy said there would be a reckoning if this bill doesn't get squashed, suggesting there could be fallout for the speaker. Well, what could that fallout 
look like? Well, there's a rule that was put in place in January because of negotiations with members of this very group that any one member of Congress could call to remove the speaker. Now, no one's done that before, but the comments from members of that group today are putting that very question center stage, and it's something that we're going to be keeping an eye on as this bill advances. Well, how is Speaker McCarthy responding to all of that? McCarthy told reporters he's confident that his speakership is secure. He said he's not concerned that members of his party will introduce a motion to vacate. Here he is earlier today defending the deal. I don't know. They read through it. It's the, he talked to him. It's the most conservative deal we ever had. If you look back in history, when Republicans had the presidency, the House and Senate, did they get any cuts? We have one House. The president said he wouldn't even talk to me. So, you know, sometimes people just don't want to vote for a debt city. Okay. Well, what about Democrats? What are they saying about this deal? The overall message from Democratic leaders is less about what they got in the bill and more about how it could have been a lot worse from their perspective. Members of the Progressive Caucus are particularly unhappy about the cuts and policy changes. White House Budget Director Shalanda Young, who was one of the key negotiators for the deal, was asked if the administration has work to do to repair relationships with these progressive members. I've worked in many divided government situations. I think this is where you would expect a bipartisan agreement to land. It's just the reality. There's not unified government. That is the reality. Well, just looking at the timeline real quick, Barbara, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has said that the U.S. could run out of money to pay its bills as early as June 5th. Do you think lawmakers could beat that date? It's tight. It's tight, but it's possible. The House is expected to vote on this tomorrow. Then the bill would head to the Senate. It could face some possible obstruction there. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has already told senators to buckle up for a possible weekend vote. Their favorite. That is NPR (laughs) congressional reporter Barbara Sprint. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. It's been a couple of months since a Chinese spy balloon flew over the United States, heightening tension between the two countries. Recently, President Biden called the incident silly, but it did put a spotlight on growing efforts by states and Congress to restrict foreign ownership of U.S. farmland. Harvest Public Media's Eva Tesfai reports. There are about 20 states that have some sort of restriction on foreign businesses or governments owning agricultural land in the United States. One of the latest controversies over foreign land ownership occurred in North Dakota. Fufang USA, a subsidiary of a Chinese agricultural company, wanted to build a $700 million corn mill in the city of Grand Forks on 300 acres of land. It would have been near a U.S. Air Force base. There was a lot of community opposition. North Dakota U.S. Senator Kevin Kramer asked the Air Force to weigh in. Just within hours or days of the Air Force letter arriving, China had a spy balloon 65,000 feet above Montana. The Air Force said the Fufang plan would be a national security threat. Shortly afterwards, the city council unanimously voted to shut the corn mill project down. Typically, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States oversees foreign purchases. Kramer, a Republican, co-sponsored two federal bills that would give the U.S. Department of Agriculture input into those decisions, saying that the balloon incident was a good reason why. Knowing, of course, that China has a 
a long and effective history, unfortunately, in theft and theft of data, theft of intellectual property. This was just a bridge too far. According to USDA data, foreign holdings of U.S. farmland increased by an average of about 2 million acres a year from 2015 to 2021. Although experts say there are issues with how the information is collected, the data also shows that China owns less than 1% of the foreign-owned land in the U.S. Canada owns the most, mostly forest land. However, the focus for federal lawmakers who look to prevent foreign ownership of agricultural land is on nations like China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. There was also a flurry of bills from state lawmakers this year. There's so many proposals. It's insane. Micah Brown is a staff attorney at the National Agricultural Law Center. He says in the past few months, eight states have passed new laws restricting foreign ownership of American land. The lawmakers that are proposing these bills are really saying the reason is national security. But some proponents say they are more concerned about food security. That's the case in Missouri, where foreign companies control much of the livestock industry. Here's Missouri State Senator Bill Eigel. I don't want China to own our ground. I honestly don't want European countries to be able to buy our ground because that's American ground that is feeding our population and we need to maintain that sovereignty. Keeping land in the hands of U.S. farmers is a problem, says Francine Miller. She's a professor at Vermont Law and Graduate School who focuses on farmland access. She thinks there should be more attention on how investors in general are driving up farmland prices and not on Chinese ownership of agricultural land. The focus on this issue obscures the issues that many of us are trying to work on, on improving land access for beginning and people of color, farmers, and people who've been denied access to land in America. However, the effort to prevent foreign ownership of land isn't going away. The National Agricultural Law Center says the issue has come up time and time again since the country's early days. For NPR News, I'm Eva Tesfai in Kansas City. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. I'm Garo Higopian. Coming up in the next 20 minutes, the latest on the debt deal brokered by President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. There are lawmakers on both sides of the aisle who say they've got problems with it. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson. Top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu MBA. State lawmakers are looking to make changes to a Massachusetts law. A WBUR investigation reveals the statute designed to protect victims is instead shielding alleged abusers. Follow the story on 90.9 WBUR. In sports, Red Sox and Cincinnati Reds at Fenway, 7-10 first pitch with Brian Bayo on the mound. First of two games with Cincinnati as the Sox return from a long road trip out west. Clear skies tonight, low 49 degrees. Tomorrow, sunshine with a high of 80. Clear tomorrow night, low 56. Thursday and Friday, they're looking sunny. Highs hitting the mid to upper 80s. Right now in Boston, sunshine and 64 degrees. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at SertaPro.com. That's Serta with a C. The Russian economy has weathered some of the harshest sanctions ever imposed on a big economy, but its oil revenues are falling and Moscow's war on Ukraine drags on. 
That's exactly why 2023 is a year of difficult choices. Is Russia's bunker economy finally feeling the heat? On the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBMR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. For more than a decade, Peter Wan made a living as a nurse working the night shift. Until recently, his colleagues and patients had no idea. He was a famous musician in West Africa. This is a song from the new album, Come Back to Me, Peter One's first major label release in the U.S. His rise to fame as a singer-songwriter came in the 1980s in Côte d'Ivoire as one half of a duo behind the acoustic folk LP, Our Garden Needs Its Flowers. Songs from that album became classics across West Africa and beyond. But by 1995, economic and political unrest in Côte d'Ivoire prompted Peter One to emigrate to the United States. He found work teaching French, and later, in nursing. But he never stopped writing songs. And he believed it was no coincidence that his nursing job landed him in Nashville, Music City. For years, he pushed through his doubts about breaking back into the industry. Right now, I feel rejuvenated feel like um, I'm born again since I'm doing what I like to do. Peter One recently stopped by our studio with his guitar to share more. Kavudu means um, let's be one, let's be together. And is this in the language of Cote d'Ivoire? Yes, the guru. And uh, I mix it with a little bit of French. Why do you do that? It's a message to my people because my country has been divided since the election war in 2010, and we're trying to reconcile people. So this is my contribution. I heard that lyric, we're brothers, why should we be at war? Exactly. Nous sommes des frères et des sœurs, pourquoi se faire la guerre? How does it feel to be singing that song, those words, in those languages of your home country so many thousands of miles away? I feel really nostalgic, and um, I'm hoping that they will hear this voice, they will hear this message and embrace it. When you moved here and began a new career, nursing, was it difficult to let go of the emotion, the artistic expression, the connection with an audience that you had as a live performer? In some sense, it was difficult, but uh, I was prepared. Coming here, I knew that it wasn't going to be easy because I wasn't known here. I was nobody here. So walking in the street here was kind of, you know, easy for me, <laughs> you know, no stress because nobody knew me. I had to start from scratch. How many years did you work as a nurse? And you still do? Yeah, I'm still doing. I've been working for 16 years now. What do your co-workers at the nursing home think? They didn't know that I was a musician. And 
I had to tell them because I started, you know, traveling, being off work all the time. I had to tell them that uh, this is why I've been <laughs> taking off all the times. How did they react? Surprise. The administrator of the facility where I'm working, he was kind of, why you didn't tell us that before? <laughs> when I listen to the album, there are moments I feel like, oh, I'm in the deep south of the United States. And there are moments on this album I feel like, oh, I'm in West Africa. Can you show us with your guitar what those two sounds feel like in your fingers? Okay, let me play you something very typical from the Africans. Mm -hmm. Is that musical line from one of your songs, or is that just typical? Yeah, that's some, something else. What makes that so typical? It's the beat. The beat, the rhythm of it. The rhythm, yeah. Yeah. And what would it sound like to play something that is typically Nashville? Okay. Don't go home. Don't go home. There's nothing for you there. Nothing for you to say. Don't go home. Don't go home. This is um, Birds Go Die Out of Sight. It's on, on the album. That song does have a very Nashville feel, but I understand the lyrics are about a friend of yours who returned to Cote d'Ivoire, where he died. Yeah, he was a friend of mine living here in the United States more than 20 years here. And uh, at some point, it started saying that we want to go home. But the moment it started saying that wasn't the right time to me. The country just was out of uh, election war, and the uh, situation wasn't back to normal yet. So I kept telling him, not, don't go home yet. It's not time. Hmm. And uh, he didn't listen to me. He left them. By the time I knew it, he was dead, less than three months after he left. It's such a poetic title for the song, Birds Go Die Out of Sight. You could have called the song Don't Go Home. That's true. But there's something so beautiful and metaphorical about Birds Go Die Out of Sight. Yeah. To me, it was like um, he was just trying to find somewhere where he can, you know, finish in peace. Yeah. On my own I came a long, long way You're on a national tour right now. Yes. You have played the Grand Ole Opry. <laughs> You've opened for huge stars like Jason Isbell. You're 67 years old. Do you think you feel this moment differently than you would have if it had happened in your 30s or your 40s? Oh, uh, yes. Oh, yes. I would feel different because I wouldn't have uh, the same experience I have right now. Um, maybe I would be big-headed. <laughs> which I'm not done now. Yeah. Now you're humble. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything's come on the right time. God has his plans. Was there ever a moment you thought, it's time for me to give up this dream? Yeah, it came, it, it happened a couple of times. But every time I sit myself, you know what, let's say forget about music and uh, do what we have to do. That's when the best inspiration comes. <laughs> <laughs> I can't give up sound. now. I yeah. just thought of a great you know. song. 
Well, Peter One, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Do you want to give us one final song to go out on? Yeah, one more song. Why not a love song? I love a love song. <laughs> Sweet rainbow, I love you. Wonderful, baby, I love you so. That's singer-songwriter Peter One. His new album, Come Back to Me, is out now. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline how businesses can attract, interview, and hire candidates. More at Indeed.com NPR. From Dickinson College, awarding the Rose Walters Prize for Global Environmental Activism to combat climate change and inspire future leaders. Learn more at dickinson.edu rwp. From Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. You're listening to WBUR. Catch us on air at 90.9 FM, online at WBUR.org and the WBUR app. I'm Garo Hagopian. Coming up, California will need to remove about 100 million tons of heat-trapping gases each year to meet its ambitious climate goals. A new startup is attracting millions to support the effort. We'll have details. Right now in Boston, 65 degrees, sunshine. It's 6 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at MPArchitectsBoston.com. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The budget compromise that would allow the debt ceiling to be raised isn't going over well with Republicans or some Democrats. We should not have unreasonable people saying we're going to force default on America unless they can kick people off food assistance. It's Tuesday, May 30th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Garo Hagopian. Also this hour, the Marines covered up a deadly incident during the Iraq War for years, and there are ties to a powerful politician. And AI is a risk to humanity, on par with the pandemic and nuclear war. That's according to an open letter signed by hundreds of executives, researchers, and engineers. At 6.30, it's Marketplace, looking at why we're feeling glum about the economy, with consumer confidence slipping to a six-month low. It's 6.01. First, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A deal aimed at preventing the country from defaulting on its loans claws back billions in federal pandemic aid. As NPR's Amanda Bastille reports, the money was originally set aside for vaccination distribution and helping some industries recover from the pandemic. Republican and White House negotiators settled on clawing back nearly $28 billion in unspent aid that was meant for federal agencies to address the impact of COVID-19. 
In total, eight agencies saw cuts for programs ranging from vaccine distribution at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, disaster relief at the Small Business Administration, and supply chain support from the Agriculture Department. But not all unspent dollars would be taken back. Pandemic aid for Indian Health Services, transportation grants, rental assistance, and veterans' medical care were spared. The House is expected to vote on the package as soon as Wednesday night. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Washington. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken says he believes the time is now for Sweden to become a NATO state. Turkey and Hungary have held up the process, but Blinken is hoping it will be resolved before a NATO meeting in July. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. At a news conference in Sweden, Secretary Blinken says there's no reason for a further delay in that country's NATO membership. We look forward to this process being completed in the weeks ahead. Uh, we have no doubt that uh, it can be. And it should be, and we expect it to be. Sweden's prime minister says his country has taken the steps it promised to Turkey to change policies on the Kurdish militant group, the PKK. As for the U.S. role in this, Turkey wants to buy American F-16 fighter jets. Blinken says the administration supports that, but some members of Congress won't approve the sale until Turkey ratifies Sweden's accession to NATO. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Federal Appeals Court in New York has cleared the way for a bankruptcy deal for opioid maker Purdue Pharma. NPR's Brian Mann reports. The Second Circuit Court of Appeals spent more than a year reviewing this case after a lower court ruled it was improper for Purdue Pharma's bankruptcy deal to block future lawsuits against members of the Sackler family, who earned billions of dollars from the sale of OxyContin and other opioids. This latest ruling overturns that decision and clears the way for a deal hashed out with thousands of state and local governments. As part of the bankruptcy settlement, the Sacklers are expected to pay roughly 5 to $6 billion and give up control of Purdue Pharma. Roughly $750 million from that payout will go to individuals across the U.S. who became addicted to OxyContin and also to the families of those who died from overdoses. Brian Mann, NPR News. Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes reported to a Texas prison today to begin serving her 11-year term for her involvement in perpetuating a blood testing scam at the company she helped found. Holmes entered the minimum security federal women's prison in Bryan, Texas today. The Dow was down 50 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Garo Hagopian in Boston. Massachusetts Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is filing an amendment to the debt ceiling bill worked out between President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Presley opposes the legislation's order to restart student loan repayments. She calls the provision, along with the resumption of interest charges and debt collection, harmful. Presley wants the three-year pause to continue while the president's student debt cancellation order goes through a legal challenge. Massachusetts Congressman Seth Moulton says he plans to support the deal on the borrowing limit. He says the agreement will prevent the U.S. from defaulting on its debt, but adds it's far from perfect. The final deal here does make some tough cuts. The work requirements that it's extending for people who need assistance have been proven by study after study uh, to not work. They are taking money away from IRS for enforcement, which is basically just a Republican gift to tax cheats. The House and Senate need to agree on the plan before June 5th in order to avoid a default. The owner of a dog training facility in South Boston heads to court tomorrow to face animal cruelty charges. The business, owned by Tyler Falconer, was shut down in March after his customers claimed their pets were being mistreated. The annual fishing derby on Lake Winnipesaukee will be canceled next year because of the declining salmon population. Diana Timmons, the New Hampshire Inland Fisheries Division chief, blames overfishing, river dams, and poor water quality, among other things. 
you know, habitats are changing, drought conditions are changing, um, invasive species introduction. So there's a lot more pressure on the resource than there used to be. She says the derby could return again in 2025 if the population of older fish rebound. In sports, Red Sox and Reds at Fenway, 7-10 first pitch with Brian Bayo on the mound, first of two games with Cincinnati as the Sox return from a long road trip out west. In the forecast tonight, clear skies, low 49, sunshine tomorrow with a high of 80. Clear tomorrow night, low 56, Thursday and Friday, well, feeling like summer, sunshine, highs hitting the mid to upper 80s. In Boston now, we've got clear skies and 65 degrees. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. We're waiting to see if a deal to raise the debt limit will pass its first major test in Congress. The House Rules Committee is voting on whether to advance the deal, which was reached by President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy over the weekend. The White House says this deal represents a compromise, but there are members on both sides of the aisle who are signaling their dissatisfaction with it. On the Republican side, members of the Freedom Caucus are urging their party to block the deal. And on the Democratic side, some progressives say while they stand with President Biden and want this bill to pass, they're still disappointed. That includes Congressman Greg Kassar of Texas. He serves as whip of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And we spoke to him earlier today before the House Rules Committee voted on this deal. Congressman Kassar, welcome. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, thanks for being with us. So assuming this proposal does advance, will you vote for this deal? This is not a both sides issue. There's really just one of the two political parties in this country who are willing to send us into default and devastate the entire American economy, and that's the Republican Party. Progressives and moderate Democrats are united around the ideal that America should pay its bills. Well, will you vote so for this deal to make sure that the debt will oh, yeah, no, be raised? Happy. It's definitely going there next, but important first to note that the Democrats have been united from day one and will continue to make sure that there is not a default. So you're going to see some Democrats vote yes and some vote no. What about Some you? Democrats will vote yes to get the deal done, so default will be avoided. And then progressives, including me, many are leaning no, because we have to hold the line against people getting screwed, getting kicked off of vital food programs, getting kicked off of their child care assistance, losing health care, or losing housing. This could have been worse, right? For example, veterans, people experiencing homelessness, those who grew up in foster care, they were all spared from some of the work requirement expansions that Republicans had wanted to see in this deal. Tell me why this current compromise just isn't good enough as it is now. So the Progressive Caucus has pushed and has helped make reduce the amount of damage. But the reason that this entire thing is ludicrous and it's a lose-lose situation for people that care about the American people is that the extremist Republicans holding the entire economy hostage don't care about the deficit. They've been caring about kicking a few people age 50 to 54 off of their meager food assistance. We've gone and talked about, okay, let's reduce the deficit by closing tax loopholes that let billionaire corporations get away with tax cheating. They said, 
No. In fact, in this deal, one of McCarthy's bottom lines I hear you placing blame on extremists on the other programs. side. But if I can just point out, I mean, for any deal to ultimately pass on the debt ceiling, people on both sides cannot have everything that they want in this deal. Do you at least acknowledge that? Well, let's acknowledge two things. First of all, this deal we all expect is going to pass. So we're going to avoid default. And compromise is necessary when you face a challenging situation, right. a hurricane, a pandemic. In this case, we're not facing that. It's a manufactured crisis. I know that, you know, the debt selling you believe should be abolished. Democrats had their best shot at making that a reality or just raising the debt ceiling on their own terms when they still controlled the House at the end of last year. But they did not. So let me ask you, I know that you were not in Congress at the end of last year, but do you blame your own party in part for missing that opportunity? Strategically, I think it is a failure on the part of those folks that are seeing that we're in a situation having to negotiate with people who really have not minded the potential of millions of people losing their jobs. We have to get their finger off of the nuclear button. And that means no longer having this kind of vote that used to, you know, a hundred different times. Do you wish your own party just said we're going to pay the bills? more initiative at the end of last year to raise the debt ceiling on their own terms? I think we absolutely should have done that at the end of last year. And now we need to make sure we're never in this kind of situation again so that we can have a real discussion and a real compromise on our budgets, but not with the full faith and credit of the United States hanging over people's heads, where millions of community members who have nothing to do with this could lose their jobs or their homes or their health care. That's just not right. Congressman Greg Kassar, Democrat from Texas and whip for the Congressional Progressive Caucus, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on. J.P. Morgan Chase and other companies are committing millions to a San Francisco-based climate startup that will pull carbon from the air and store it underground. Climate reporter Laura Clivens with member station KQED takes us to the company's headquarters to see what that means. Sean Kinetic points to a stack of what looks like hay bales on a parking lot in an industrial part of San Francisco. All right. What's behind me is you'll see lovingly labeled bales of corn stover. So this is everything left over after the corn harvest. Leaves and stalks, you have cobs. All these uh, leftovers from a nearby farm are full of carbon. They would normally get plowed back into a field or left to decompose, releasing stored carbon back into the air. Instead, this corn stover will get ground down to dust. Then we take that sawdust and we inject it into a reactor that's about a thousand degrees Fahrenheit. In just a few seconds, a viscous black goo forms. It looks like molasses and smells like barbecue sauce. This is bio oil. And Charm Industrial, which Kinetic helped found, is doing something interesting with it. The bio oil is pumped underground as a permanent carbon removal technology. It's injected deep down into old oil wells where it solidifies. Charm uses the same equipment fossil fuel companies extracted oil with in the first place. Charm isn't burying the bio oil in California yet due to regulations, but they are in Kansas. That's where our well sites are, and that's where we're hiring. Bio oil is one approach in the burgeoning field of carbon removal. Carbon removal refers to things you can do 
whether it involves nature-based systems or technologies to literally pull CO2 out of the atmosphere. Danny Cullenward researches carbon removal as a fellow at American University. Scientists agree that to avoid catastrophic warming, humans need to stop putting climate-harming pollution into the air. And we need to draw some down. The world's forests and oceans naturally pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. But, and here's Cullen Ward again. The problem is if we don't intervene in these systems, they won't suck up enough because we put such an unfathomably large quantity of pollution in the atmosphere in the first place. Startups like Charm Industrial need money to develop carbon removal technologies. That's where the private sector is jumping in. A group of companies, including J.P. Morgan Chase, Stripe, Alphabet, and Shopify, plan to pay Charm millions of dollars. In exchange, the company will bury the bio-oil equivalent of what 31,000 passenger cars emit a year. That's just a tiny amount of what needs to come out of the atmosphere, but it's a start. Nan Ransahoff is head of climate at Stripe. We want to get more companies to the starting line and then help them get down the cost curve as quickly as possible so that we can build carbon removal solutions that have the potential to get to the scale that we need to solve the problem. The latest international climate change report calls for carbon removal, but a United Nations panel calls the technology unproven. People living in communities where bio-oil may get buried have worries of their own. Katie Valenzuela works with the environmental justice group, the Central Valley Air Quality Coalition. Every time we have this great new idea that we want to test out, it lands in the Central Valley somehow and ends up having unintended consequences that weren't foreseen that then we have to deal with. Valenzuela grew up in the Central Valley, where most of California's oil is drilled. That's why it's also a place considered highly suitable to store carbon. Valenzuela is okay with the idea of carbon removal, like what Charm Industrial is doing. But she worries oil and gas companies will use these technologies as an excuse to keep drilling and polluting her home. I wish that we could take care of the communities who needed it the most first and then explore the other thing that we know we need to do. Regardless, California is betting big on pulling carbon from the atmosphere. The state plans to meet its future climate goals by removing and capturing about 100 million tons of carbon annually. That's roughly the same amount of pollution that comes from 22 million passenger cars in a year. For NPR News, I'm Laura Clivens in San Francisco. The Little Mermaid took in a great big haul at the box office this weekend. It was the fifth highest Memorial Day opening of all time, in spite of critics' generally crabby reviews. Well, NPR's Tilda Wilson went fishing for other opinions from the movie's target audience. There's a lot to love about Disney's live-action remake of The Little Mermaid. Maybe it helps to be five years old. Kalia, whose mom did not give her last name, saw the movie in Washington, D.C. She listed everything she liked. The fishes and the mermaid and the crab. This seaweed is always greener in somebody else's lake. Critics said the movie was all wet. Kalia would like a word with them. I told them, why are you being mean to the things that I like? What more is you looking for under the sea? Other young critics found The Little Mermaid to be an effective piece of cinema. Seven-year-old Mia Guglielmo found it so fishticated. There was a lot of jump scares. I liked it more than the first Little Mermaid because it looked more real. Something about you seems different. I can't quite figure it out. She got legs! Some people are annoyed that Disney keeps recycling its old intellectual property with versions of the same movie. 
Eight-year-old Sofia Casarubias did not care. She had never seen the original Little Mermaid. I like how Ariel and she found her match that she loved. Ariel had a boyfriend and it's really cute. Casarubias says the Little Mermaid has it all. Romance, comedy, tragedy, bring tissues. I think it's worth watching because you'll get your tears out because it's really sad. With an opening weekend that brought in more than $100 million and dedicated fans like these, Disney will be crying all the way to the bank. She's got everything. Tilda Wilson, NPR News. I've got gadgets and gizmos aplenty. I've got who's it's and what's it's galore. You want thingamabobs? I got 20. But who cares? You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. I'm Garo Higopian. Coming up in the next 20 minutes, details of a deadly incident during the Iraq war were buried by the Marines for years, including links to a powerful politician. A look at business is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, ranked by U.S. News & World Report as best in New England for primary care education. Learn more at umassmed.edu. On Wall Street, the Dow was down 50 points, the S&P 500 up just under a point, and the Nasdaq was up 42. Gas prices are ticking up as we head into the unofficial start of summer. AAA says regular is now averaging 3.52 a gallon in Massachusetts. That's up 8 cents from the last week, but is a nickel lower than the national average. There is expected to be a shortage of seasonal workers on Cape Cod again this summer. Before the pandemic, there were about 5,000 workers on the Cape with foreign visas, and now there are about half that. Paul Nedzwicki with the Cape Cod Chamber of Commerce uh, was asking visitors to be understanding. He says with a community of 15 towns and a population of about uh, 235,000 people year-round, patience is always good, he says. He blames a lack of seasonal housing for the shortage. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Sleeping Beauty, on stage now through June 4th at the Citizens Bank Opera House. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Tap and listen to WBUR anywhere this summer takes you. Listen live and catch up on anything you missed. Download or update the WBUR app now. In sports, we've got uh, the Red Sox and Reds at Fenway. That game getting underway at 7:10 with Brian Bayo on the mound. And uh, checking the forecast, if you've noticed a bit of a haze in the air this afternoon, we've been seeing some smoke from wildfires in southwestern Nova Scotia that uh, should be moving out within the next hour or so. Tonight, uh, clear skies, low of 49 degrees. Tomorrow, sunshine with a high of 80. Clear tomorrow night, low 56. Thursday and Friday looking beautiful, summer-like, sunny with highs hitting the mid to upper 80s. Right now in Boston, we've got uh, sunny skies and 65 degrees. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. More than 300 executives, researchers, and engineers working on AI issued a dire statement today. It is just one sentence long, and it reads, Mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal-scale risks such as pandemics and nuclear war. 
NPR Tech reporter Bobby Allen joins me to discuss for this week's All Tech Considered. Bobby, that is pretty dire indeed. Um, Tell me more about who's issuing this warning. Yeah, a San Francisco nonprofit called the Center for AI Safety issued it. And as you noted, it's pretty alarmist, right? It doesn't get more doomsday than extinction by AI. I feel like I'm in an episode of Black Mirror or something. (laughs) You know, but, you know, many notable serious people in the AI world signed it. So uh, Sam Altman is one of them. He runs the Microsoft-backed OpenAI startup, which developed popular AI tools like image creator Dolly and the chatbot everyone's playing with these days, ChatGPT. The CEO of DeepMind, which is an industry-leading AI research lab run by Google, um, also signed it. And uh, this man named Jeffrey Hinton, who's considered the godfather of AI for his work on what's known as neural networks, which is kind of the basis of so many AI applications. And I actually talked to Hinton recently, and he echoed the sentiment that he now shares with 300 others in the statement. There's a serious danger that we'll get things smarter than us fairly soon, and that these things might get bad motives and take control, politicians and industry leaders need to take that very seriously. This isn't just a science fiction problem. Isn't just a science fiction problem. But again, AI leading to humanity's extinction sure sounds like the sci-fi of of my 80s youth. How seriously are people taking this warning? Hinton says we should be worried, but other experts say we definitely should not be freaking out about humanity's extinction just yet, right? I think the extreme language here, Mary Louise, is really intended to attract attention and be sort of a wake-up call to policymakers and regulators. Now, within AI safety circles, there's this phrase that's getting pretty popular. You hear it all the time. It's called P-doom, P for probability. And, you know, the probability that AI leads to doom. What does that doom look like? For some experts, their P-doom is AI taking over a power grid. For others, their P-doom is AI leading to mass job loss. Others say their P-doom is already happening now, right? And it's AI supercharging the harms of social media, including the spread of misinformation. So yeah, the language in the statement is pretty over the top, but I think it points to a debate the AI community is having right now. And if you're right that this is intended as a wake-up call for regulators, how are regulators, how are lawmakers responding? Well, in Washington, there's growing awareness and real interest, but legislation has been slow to emerge. Meanwhile, across the pond in the EU, they're already debating some pretty specific proposals. Lawmakers there have floated something called the AI Act, which calls for sweeping regulations, including that tech companies would be forced to open up the black boxes of AI and show the world how much copyrighted information is in there. We don't know that right now. It would also hold companies responsible for how their AI is used in the world. But here's what's really interesting. You know, leading voices like Sam Altman, who recently appeared before Washington and urged for regulations. Mm -hmm. Well, when the EU started debating the specifics of this bill I just mentioned, he said, no, not so fast. It might not be possible to comply. And that if the law does pass, OpenAI might have to pull out of the EU. So the cynical take here is these tech executives are asking for regulations. But, you know, they're kind of just looking like good guys um, when they know nothing might actually be done. Thank you, Bobby. Thanks, Mary Louise. And Parrish Bobby Allen. Support for All Tech Considered comes from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. This is NPR News.
If hope is the thing with feathers, then spring is a great time of year to look up. Billions of birds head north during spring migration to nest and breed. And you can find them even in the densest of cities. NPR's Melissa Block sent this audio postcard from the wilds of our nation's capital. Here's the thing. You just have to tune your ears a bit. Filter out traffic and horns and focus on song. I've come out early on a Sunday morning to meet up with a few fellow birders. We'll be catching the tail end of spring migration. Good morning. I'm Melissa. Melissa, finally nice to meet you. Great to meet you too. Yeah. Tyke James bikes you, up. Uh, He's president of DC Audubon. He suggested we go birding in Fort Slocum Park. It's just a few blocks long, set among brick row houses. Step into the park, and you find yourself under a thick canopy of towering oak and elm. Pros and cons of being in here. It's very dense, so it's really great migratory stopover habitat. But, oh, peewee. Nice. But yeah, you're going to hear more than you see. (laughs) That little eastern wood peewee, it's likely migrated all the way up from South America this spring to breed. Peewee. You can't unhear it. Every time I hear a peewee, I'm like, there's a peewee. It's right there. This is Emmy Bagrati. People think when you're birding in a big city, you can't get to places like this. Mm-hmm. But honestly, with the exception of some ambient noise, I mean, would you know that you're in D.C. right now? And we're hearing a lot the burbly buzz of a blue-gray gnatcatcher, the insistent tea kettle, tea kettle of a Carolina wren. One of the smallest birds, but also one of the loudest. Pretty soon we hear the raucous rasp of a great crested flycatcher. We hear eastern towies singing, drink your tea. And all of a sudden, Joe Stiles spots one of my favorite birds. Oh, 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 yeah, 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 did you see that? Oh, okay, yeah, there it is. Are you seeing it? Oh, it's so pretty. It's a spectacular male American redstart, black with bright orange patches that flash in the sun. It's on full display right now, which I know it's called a redstart, but I would think of it a little more orange. It's very much like a Halloween orange and black palette. Yeah. It's not red to me at all. Birders will often talk about their spark bird, the one that got them hooked. Joe Stiles is especially fond of loons. You know, it's a very melancholy call, which is very beautiful. We can do it on my hands. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Impressive. So impressive, in fact, that the Merlin Bird app, which identifies audio of bird songs and calls, the app registered Joe doing that and reported that there was a loon nearby. In the end, after about an hour and a half in the park, we've seen or heard chimney swift, red belly woodpecker, downy woodpecker, northern flicker. 23 species in all. Blue gray gnatcatcher, Carolina wren. Not bad for a morning's gamble in the heart of Washington, D.C. Black pole warbler, northern cardinal, and as our last bird, the brown thrasher. Melissa Block, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
It's Garo Hagopian. Thanks for taking 90.9 WBUR along with you tonight. Straight ahead at 6.30, international tourism to the U.S. is still far below pre-pandemic levels, but tourism from overseas might finally rebound this summer. A look at which American destinations will see the most benefits from international travelers coming up. State legislators are looking to make changes to a law. A WBUR investigation reveals the statute designed to protect victims is instead shielding alleged abusers. Follow the story here on 90.9 WBUR. It's the Red Sox and Reds at Fenway. 7-10 start to Brian Bayo on the mound. In the forecast, clear skies tonight, low 49 degrees. Tomorrow, sunshine with a high of 80. Clear tomorrow night, low 56. Thursday and Friday, looking sunny with highs hitting the mid to upper 80s. 66 with sunshine. It's 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Advance your career and become a leader in your profession. SalemState.edu graduate.